Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom, and welcome to the Land of Israel Network. And uh, shalom and welcome to the Corona period, where we're still at the Corona period, but we're, we're here in Israel. We're starting to really come out of it, and it's, uh, it's, it feels like, like budding of trees, the budding of plants. It's like we're coming back out of our hibernation. And I just want to send you blessings for health and healing wherever you are around the world. We have a fabulous show for you today. Uh, on the show today, we have Rabbi Mike Foyer for a great discussion, both about the politics that are going on and the narrative war and uh, 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 Rashida Tlaib's you know, amazing photo uh, with uh, the dog dressed as the f- in the flag of the United States. We're going to discuss that in depth. And then a Torah portion, two Torah portions that are so important, which is Behar, and I did that interview with Rabbi Mike live on Facebook and on YouTube, my YouTube channel. So check those out, you know, at Yishai Fleischer. It's easy to connect there. Uh, and then after we finished with uh, Rabbi Mike Foyer, which was great, uh, we have with us Dr. Sherry Sufi from Western Australia, and we'll be talking about um, are, is Israel a European colonial enterprise or not? and how to defeat that argument. So those are two very interesting discussions that we had. They both took place actually live on Facebook and now it turns into the podcast. And uh, enjoy, the, enjoy the show. I don't want to lengthen it anymore because it's already a long show. It's almost two hours altogether. Uh, but, you know, uh, we like to give you content uh, to make sure that all those dishes are washed and all those joggings are done. So lots of blessings from the Land of Blessings. Here's Rabbi Mike Foyer with Parshat Behar Bechukotai, and issues of the day. Here we go. All right, everybody. Shalom and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show here on my Facebook page and on my YouTube as well and on the Land of Israel Network on our podcast there. I've got a picture up of Rashida Tlaib and a dog. We'll talk about that just in a second when we have Rabbi Mike Foyer join us on the uh, program today. Uh, Before I do, I have to apologize for my long hair. I want to explain just for a second. Uh, today is Lad Be'omer, right? The 34th day of the Omer. And according to both Ashkenazim and Sephardim, you could er- already get a haircut today. And according to Ashkenazim, you could get a haircut on Lag Be'omer, but it did not get a haircut yesterday on Lag Be'omer. And that is because um, uh, a Jew, a soldier, was was killed yesterday. One could even say maybe murdered, or maybe you can't say that because it was in a line of battle, but uh, with, with with terrorists. So I don't know if it was a murder, but it was definitely a death. And so yesterday, uh, this amazing soldier, uh, her, his name is, and I, I have a way of remembering his name, uh, Amit. Amit means friend or colleague. And uh, Ben Yigal is son of he who will redeem, son of the redeemer. Uh, and so that he's one of us, uh, Amit, that he's just like us. And he was in Sayyid Golani in the elite force of Golani. Uh, but so he's just one of us. He's like an awesome Israeli fighting for the rights of Jewish people in the land of Israel. Uh, and then Ben Yigal is that he's the, the son of kind of a redemption uh, that should come, that's waiting to come, uh, but was either stymied yesterday by this murder somewhat uh, or not. Or maybe or maybe there was something very special in his kind of death yesterday that somehow going to help us come to a better consciousness. Uh, either way, it hurt my Lagba Omer Happiness, you're supposed to be happy on Lagba Omer. I heard it a little bit during the daytime. So I decided I can't, even though I wanted to get a haircut yesterday, 
and I'm, I'm legally allowed to get a haircut according to, to Jewish Ashkenazi law even, unlike Omer, uh, I just couldn't do it while he was not yet buried. So that's what happened uh, yesterday. So that's my apology. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. I'm also looking forward to hearing from Rabbi Mike Foyer, who is with us right now. Rabbi Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, Ishaq. It's good to see you. Oh, hold Thanks on one second. Let me change where the audio is uh, is coming in. I'm sorry about that. I, I forgot that I have to switch it into different headphones. Okay, here we go. Good. You hear me, Rabbi, you hear me now? Yeah, you, you sound you sound awesome and great. Thank you very much for joining me today. That. Rabbi Mike Foyer is, uh, is uh, a regular the show and he is also uh the uh host and creator of his own show called uh, the jewish story and it's found at jewishstory.co and all his other stuff is at uh, facebook.com forward slash rav mike and um rav mike we have an awesome 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 stuff to discuss today it's awesome big double to- double parsha the world double parsha once again right. coming to a boil so yeah right what, and what we're finishing off we're finishing off the book of vayikra the book of leviticus uh, with 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 a with a rage and fury. So I put up a banner here. It's called. It says we're going to study Parshot Behar Bechukotai. I wrote it in Hebrew on purpose, even though a lot of our audience is English speaking. I just thought to myself, everybody's got to learn to read Hebrew a little bit. So Parshot means are the Torah portions plural. Behar uh, Bechukotai. Before we get to it, I want to talk to you about something that I found to be quite amazing, which was a photo that was put up by Congresswoman. Uh, Tlaib, Rashida Tlaib. One second, what did I do? I, oh, there it is. There's the there's the picture itself. Let's just see it. All right, let's take off the Bar Bechukotai sign. <laughs> um, uh, this is an, an incredible photo that she posted up, and she writes, Happy World Kafia Day. Kafia is the traditional Arab uh, scarf headdress. type thing or headdress, right? And th- she's wearing it like a scarf now. It is a day to raise awareness of the Palestinian struggle, the Nakba Day, and to celebrate the beautiful Palestinian culture uh, at Sign Kafia Day. Now, the, the picture itself is uh, like the cover of Rolling Stone type thing, right? It's like, a, uh, it's like a totally incredible photo. And I think that some people, even my own wife said to me, who's, who's pretty astute on these things, says to me, that she didn't catch what I was pointing out to her, which is this, in my opinion, what this picture means, it, it's it's all about imagery here. And the imagery is Islam is dominating the poodle or pug United States. <laughs> and 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 so so you got two images on the image. The dog is obviously a, you know, some people think it's ugly, other people think it's cute. I happen to think it's either cute. way, it's, it's subservient. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. It's it, yeah, that's right. It's subservient, and and it's like a yeah, it's subservient, but it's also even its cuteness is a type of pathetic cuteness. It's not like a strong cuteness. It's a silly, you know, kind of dog. It's a goofy dog. It's a goofy goofy dog. dog. That's right. He's a goofy dog, not goofy. Who's not exactly a dog, but goofy. What is a goofy, goofy dog? Not go there. And 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 it's so it's so obvious now. Now the the trick of the picture mm. is her ex- facial expression that it's like really like she's having fun with it. Right. Everything is cool. Everything is funny. Everything is 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 like lively. But that is not the meaning of the picture. That is a way to get into people's minds that like 
Here's the the U.S. is going to be dominated by Islam, and the the words are, and don't forget, like that's one set of 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 images, and then the words are a completely different set, which is Palestine and the struggle, not mentioning Israel and the beauty of Palestinian culture, as opposed to some other thing that's not mentioned. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is one heck of an awesome piece of propaganda. It is certainly well put together. You, you left out a critical piece that people may be unaware of, which is that the dog, of course, is an archetypical impure animal in Islamic culture, right? It's a, a, a not, I mean, not an acceptable comparison, right? It's for, for, for a Muslim to be compared to a dog is, is, is second only probably to the pig, right? right? So, so dressing up America as the sort of like the, the, the cute, but ugly, you know, goofy little dog in the, in the, uh, in the arms, it, yeah, I hear it. I mean, without without getting into the parshanut, into the analysis of the picture, I think the important piece here is um, is a question that I've had for a long time, which is that who's driving this bus? Who who is it that is directing this type of visual narrative warfare? Who has sort of put together this um, sort of uh, very powerful set of freshman congresswomen um, who have a certain look? They have a certain style. They've captured the imagination of the American people on issues, by the way, which don't necessarily have to do with, um, as you're pointing out, this sort of struggle between Islam and the West, since, of course, much of the West is still unwilling to recognize that that struggle's going on, right? Let's not forget that most, I think, Americans, I can't speak for the Europeans, but most Americans, I think, you would be labeled as a crazy conspiratist alt writer if you start talking about sort of like a struggle of civilizations between Islam and the West. Even though anybody who knows anything about history knows that that struggle has been going on for I don't twelve hundred years, right? <laughs> like, and it's had you know, right ebbs and flows, it, but right it has ebbs and flows, and to the point that that also on the Western, let's say uh, Christendom, they also had their imagery, famously the croissant. The croissant is this food that was created uh, in, I think it was in Vienna, when when the uh, West, when 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 the Muslim incursion was stopped in Vienna, so they created this treat called the croissant, oh, yeah. which is supposed That's to represent the, the crescent. crescent. They're eating right. the crescent, right? I I eat you, I, I eat you, I beat you. Am I gonna have to snopes you on that one? Or are you sure it's true? Snope it, snope it, snope it, snope away, and and snope I away. and I. And I, by the way, recommend everybody snopes away uh, and uh, checks things out. And also comments. Please comment uh, on both uh, uh, any feed that you find right now. It really helps us uh, get the show going. So love to hear from you. Yeah, I was, I was moved by the, by the depth of that picture. And I think that it signals something. The other thing I, I want to say about that picture is that I think that we underestimate this other war that's happening right now in the world. This, this cultural social media war and the people who understand that it's a war and are fighting it like a war are moving ahead. They yes. are able to, to get more market share. Market share just means more, more share in the minds of people, especially young people. Which translates to resource, political power, economic influence. It's not, it's not just um, sort of, you know, attention. Right, it's not. It's not as my kids say, a battle for Sumi. Right, it's for Sumi Lave. Right, that just like, me, 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 me. Right, no, no, no. There, there are direct, measurable effects of these things in the real world, as we call Absolutely. it. Absolutely. In a place, in a place like Hebron, uh, where I work, uh, we see these young people that are affected 
by this way of thinking come in and be actual active uh, combatants of one kind or another against Jewish presence in Hebron, and they are moved by the Rashid Tlaib uh, language and verbiage, and she's the Islamic, and, and she does it so well. She is the Muslim within that crew. She 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 is the she is the you know she's the Palestine one. There's yeah. I would say she's the I would say she's the Arab nationalist. It's 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 right. actually Ilan Omar that's the Muslim. Right, Ilan Omar is the Muslim, but she seems to right, but she seems to right. Okay, good. I like what you're saying. So this is the she's the Arab nationalist, right? Uh, okay, and 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 okay. I think it's important to understand that because. Because um, there's sort of like something for everyone, right? Like you know the the notice what that that whole thing is about is that the celebrating the beautiful Palestinian culture. Doesn't say anything about Islam there, right? Mm -hmm. Nakba the Palestinian struggle. That's an appeal at a very deep level, at a core level of American culture lies that Wilsonian concept uh, that national self determination is a is a sort of an intrinsic right. It's a moral obligation on the United States. To create a world in which peoples have this ability for national self determination, and, and I, I think that, that it's a very important distinction. Um, they, they, and so therefore, she's not, and because she's not speaking to those who, for whom, um, you know, the, the head covering and it might appear medieval or it might, you know, sort of religion in general has been debunked. No, no, this is a free people struggling nobly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right uh, now, what exactly the Nakba is and who. Um, would be responsible for the events surrounding our attempt to reestablish ourselves as a people in our land. No, no, no. That uh, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> let's just let's just speak it out so that so that so that people understand. The word Nakba means catastrophe. And oh, and it was. Well, uh, no, it was. No, no. There's no. It was, it was a catastrophe for them. Why it was a catastrophe? Right. And did, and did it have to be? And right. who and it wasn't. Was responsible. It, it is. Right, no, it, it's it continues to be. Now, but right. now it's an industry. Like I saw someone make right. a comment that um, you know the millions of ethnic Germans that were removed from their homes in the wake of World War II, with the sense that that um, after the Nazi expansion, that there needed to be a little bit of like separation and cooling off period between German speakers and everybody else in Europe. They don't have a Nakba day. They don't. They don't haven't created a national culture out of refusing to accept responsibility for the past and as substituting for that a refusal to move forward into the future, right? Even we as a people who certainly mourn our past and, and are very attached to it, that's only a springboard for building the future, right? So what, what this sort of beautiful culture that she's offering and celebrating is, I'm not really sure. Well, she's saying it's a type of Tisha above. It's like we were destroyed, but we, we will now build our Palestine instead of, of Israel. We'll, we will struggle and we will beat Israel. And but you, uh, but you know what the difference is, Sisha? It's a powerful narrative. We've been, we, yeah, but, but, you, but you want to know what the Gilui Milta, what the really the, the point of exposure is, is that on Tisha B'Av, we go into our private spaces and mourn. We don't try to get the world on board with Tisha B'Av. We mm -hmm. never tried to get the world on board with Tisha B'Av because we understand who's responsible for the destruction of the temple, the first and the second, ourselves. Right. It's true. God sent the Babylonians, to, God sent the Romans. But in the end of the day, mm -hmm. because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. And that very core stance of taking responsibility for our own past is what has given us a beautiful future, a present right now, and God willing, the future will only be more grand. Whereas... To, to create a culture which wants to convince the world that something was done to you 
and that the world therefore is somehow responsible to rectify what was done to you is to elevate victimhood to the status of sanctity. And that's right. why you have to create these memes to draw people in. There yeah, no but, that's, but, that's, but that's a very popular modality right now, the, uh, the, the outrage modality, where you're like, I have been wrong, or this person's a wronger, and we're going to out them, and, and the person who's the outer of outrage or the outer of the bad guy's actions is, is valued in social media, is valued today. We've spoken about this. This is, this is what is left of morality in the postmodern world. Because without some sort of narrative which allows you to decide what is right and wrong, good and bad in the world, without getting into where you get it from, it doesn't even have to be some divine narrative, that's not my point. But without some sense of continuity and standard of judgment, all you're left with is the discourse of power, as Foucault will tell you, one of the founding thinkers of the postmodernist world. And, and in that, we've spoken about it so many times, there are only victims and perpetrators. So therefore, the more a victim you are, the more righteous you are. And that, and the, and the expression of outrage on behalf of the victim is the way in which you can what's called sig signal your virtue, right? Whereas we live in a world of heroism. We understand that actually, no, there are, there are more than victims and perpetrators. There are heroes. Right. And a hero uses force and power in service of what's good and right, even though, by the way, there are no perfect heroes. Our tradition is not a tradition of perfect heroes. Everyone from, from Avram to Moshe to David to you name it. Right? Everyone messes up. Everyone reaches the limits of power. Everyone is a gray character on some level because we're we're real people. Right? It's not mythos. Right. Right. And and speaking of heroes, again, today's show is dedicated to Amit Benigal, who was obviously a hero. And the story of his heroism, by the way, is that he was um, moved by his trip to Poland. Yes. Uh, he took a, he took a uh, March of the Living trip, and he was very moved by the story. And he came back embracing nationalism, Jewish nationalism, in the sense of of just what you were saying right now, which is there was is there's an element of defense, like no, never again. But then taking that and moving it towards let's build something. Yes, let's build defense, but let's let's also build as an off country, right, right? As a means to an end. If you're right. not willing to defend. Right, I saw a great quote by um, by John Stuart Mill. Um, maybe I can pull it up here for myself real quick. Um, yeah, here it is. I used it yesterday in my podcast. Uh, he says, war is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks that nothing is worth war, is much worse. Right. right? The, 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 the sense that, oh, no. War is the worst thing. Well, nothing is worth war. Well, what that does is it creates a world in which evil flourishes, right? And and I think that that um, you know Amit uh, Benigal is a great example because I promise you, as much as a hero as he is, if we went through his life and started examining things, he's not perfect. And when his father Shalone Damizet was weeping over his grave and saying that he lost everything, it, nowhere in his mind does his father think he was perfect because you don't right. need to be perfect to be a hero. All you need to do is, like you said, is to catch fire with an idea which is larger than you and be most nefesh, be willing to give of yourself in order to make it real in the world. Uh, this young man, Amit, also joined not just a regular army unit, but the kind of one of the most famous of the elite units called Sayyid Golani. Sayyid Golani has a, a kind of tradition of being just one, just considers itself one of the top, top of the uh, elite units. Um, and at the same time, it's like a type of elite unit that's used. 
They they use them a lot. They don't just train a lot. They're they're oh, yeah, out no, there. No, no. They're, they're very they're, active. Yeah. Right. They're 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 the active folks and and um and uh he was in the field uh and suddenly blocks got got thrown at him. Now now in this town next to Janine that they were throwing these blocks and 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 uh, and they were trying to arrest some of the perpetrators. Uh, there's really been that whole town has been given to an anti-Israel atmosphere altogether. Uh there, there's videos of just the amount of Molotov cocktails and other things that are being thrown at them. And uh, we see also now in some of the uh, polls that have been taken in uh, a recent article that I saw about East Jerusalem Arabs, that they less and less identify with Israel and more and more identify with Palestinianism. And I think the answer is very, very clear to me. When you, when you don't demand a kind of loyalty, when you don't also inculcate your culture and your story and your narrative in people who are in your land, but not necessarily, you know, Jewish or, 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 or would naturally identify with Zionism and Israeliness. But if you don't demand that and you don't teach that and you allow a whole anti-narrative to be taught uh, in those places, in those schools, in, including in East Jerusalem, you start to lose control of the culture. You start to lose control of the culture. And then you really create a whole class uh, that wants to undermine your, your rule and wants to rebel against you. And you just haven't done the work of being a sovereign. Of being a sovereign, it's for sure true. There's also the work of being a sovereign of um, owning the responsibility for for physical life. Like, because I'll give you like the the um, the flip side example. You know, there's gotten a lot of press in the current COVID crisis has has been generated around the fact that a significant percentage of the doctors, nurses, uh, people working in pharmacies, etc., that are on the front lines of this crisis here in in our country are Israeli Arabs. Right. And, and, and have a complicated, listen, I, I don't envy the Israeli Arabs at all. I would only envy them if there was an Arab lived in any other Arab country, but, right. but exactly. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't envy them because it's not simple. It's not simple. We haven't been perfect. There's a lot of bad blood. Fine. But why is it that there is a growing identification amongst Israeli Arabs with the project here? If not with the project, at least with the reality, because they're doctors, nurses, and, and pharmacists, meaning not only have we, have we, sort of communicated to them that this project is a positive thing. We've shown it in reality. There is a missing link that we're ashamed of or we're afraid of that we're not willing to draw, which is to say explicitly, the reason we're able to do this is because we're the Jewish people. The reason we're able to create a culture in which, despite the wars, despite the hundred year war, which has existed between our people and your people, we're still struggling and succeeding in building a society where you can raise, you can rise to the highest levels. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's really uh, only because we're Jewish people. But, but you gotta, you gotta have, you gotta have an embrace on the one hand, and on the other hand, the push back, and those things work together so well. And if you don't allow yourself, I mean, say, not everybody's going to become a, a doctor or a lawyer. No, nope. uh, but but you allow that class to rise up, great. But you also got to push back on on something that, by the way, gives a lot of jihadism, gives a lot of meaning to people who don't have the wherewithal for one reason or another to rise up in society. It gives them purpose. It gives yeah. people purpose. It's a fight. There's a fun element to it. You're going to fight. You're going to struggle. You're going to, you're going to, you know, and you're going to create your depth of identity, which is so lacking in so much of the world today, that sense right. of, of struggle. It's a redemptive movement in its own way. Right. right. And don't miss the power of that. But I, I would, I would say that you're not, you're not saying anything other than what I said. You're just showing a different face of it. Meaning, the fact that we're the Jewish people means that we have to stay the Jewish people in order to provide that, which means if there are elements within our society that say, no, 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 this can't be a Jewish state, we say to them, 
you're wrong. First of all, you should know on the face of it, you're a fool because it's the fact that there were Jewish people and this is a Jewish state that has provided the life that you're enjoying. And second of all, you're wrong because we're going to fight that battle no matter what, whether you agree with me or not. Right. And you're not going to win. And you're not going. That, that actually that actually brings me to another thing. There was there was there was a there's a lot being said these days about the uh, bias in the New York Times. There was a New York Times article uh, that had a title. I wish I would have prepared it before the show, but the the title went something like this: like uh, Israeli laboratory that oh, the military uh, labs, yeah, military lab that 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 specialized in killing in killing is not working and not working on the coronavirus and a lot of people were very upset about that but i was saying i said to myself and i said to people i don't think you're thinking about this right israel being tough or what i have found no better word sadly than badass okay not that imagery does not bother me so much let people be afraid a little bit let people be like, whoa, that's a that's a tough state. Like I wouldn't, I I personally, me, my take is I wouldn't immediately try to like erase that image. Good, you, you we're 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 scary, and you're gonna have to be watch out. I call this imagery. I've, I have come up with a word for it. Actually, it's called fauda. It's fauda, <laughs> which is very popular. Which is which is the best thing in Israeli Hasbara in the last thirty years. Nothing has been more powerful. Walking? Yes, at least at least a few episodes to understand what what it's about. Okay. Uh, it's 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 because it's such a brand of what Israel is, yeah, is. And, and and it's become an ama amazing brand ambassador to what Israel is. And the bottom line message of, of Fauda is Don't mess. terrorists have families, terrorists are nice, they have loves, they have children, they have the whole thing. And if you come with us, we're gonna destroy you. That's the that's the simple I, I hear it. At the same time, I think that that the the insidious element of that type of headline because i saw it as well right um, like a, like a, like a scary bad jew like a blood like a yeah, like an old not even, classic. That. not even that is that bottom line jews don't have a right to exist we don't have a right to defend ourselves because mm -hmm. the military industry's purpose is not killing the military's industry purpose is keeping the state of israel alive it's right. true that that we do that through killing, it is a rough neighborhood. But its purpose—if its purpose was killing—truth is, there would be a lot less war in this region. Right. We unleashed the Israeli army on everyone. If we actually did the Fauda model you're talking about, we just unleashed the wrath. Right. But, like who? Who in this region? Even Iran, I think, in the end of the day, we would bust a hole in them. Yeah, you for know? sure. If, 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 we, if we went full out, it'll be over in, in, in a week. That's what I'm saying. Is that and so therefore, in in that headline is in the end of the day in the New York mm -hmm. Times from the coverage of the Holocaust all the way today has embodied this unfortunate aspect of the Jewish consciousness. Remember, the Jewish consciousness is what they're what they're is that Jews only have a right to exist as victims, right? When we're and, victims, then we have a moral clarity and a moral rectitude, and we're allowed to exist. But as people who do the messy business of wielding power in order to not just defend ourselves, but to create our vision of the world, no, 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 that we don't do. That's speaking, going that. speaking of victims, speaking of Jews as victims, there's a new Jewish class of victims. Yeah. What's that? Take your time period, yeah, anyway. But there's a new Jewish, there's a new one right now, it turns out. Really? And that is a weird new class of victim, which is... American Jewry, victim to the coronavirus, turning to Israel and saying, you're not helping enough. Yes, you're not. 
Yeah. I've seen a little bit of that, and it's it's been it's been oddly surprising. It's been well. Let's just say again what I said last week, which and I and I remind that uh, my mom said this to me. She's like American Jewry has never felt. This is the first time that they felt less safe than Israeli Jewry, yeah. and and so this has been a watershed moment in, on a on a on a collective unconscious type level. And, uh, and I'll and, say now what I said then. Come home, people. Come home as soon as the gates open. Don't miss the opportunity. Right. And, and by the way, I have a nice banner. Here it is, Building Israel Together. Do you like that? Building okay. Israel Together. That's our, that's our, that's our little uh, slogan here. Oh, and, and by the way, if I'm already putting up slogans, let me also put up uh, that I, if you're going to be coming home, please come home and visit us in Hebron, the Jewish the community the of. The Mamas and the Papas, they're waiting for you at home, and you can learn more about it, see great videos, and connect at hebronfund.org. I'll ask you why you're not eating enough. That's right. That's right. It's nice to nosh next to the tomb of the fathers and mothers. Uh, but anyway, there's this there's this class of folks that are like upset at Israel for not like reaching out more. And this is exactly what I've said all along that that the that the destiny of American Jewry is to become more and more like a French Jewry or like a British Jewry that exist and they're proud, but at the same time a type of um, they're top of satellite. What's that? They're they're subsidiary to the center. Right. And and when there's a problem, they ask the center for help. Yeah, which is fine. I think that that you know that um, I, as much as I just, which as much as I just made the call for everyone to come home, if you can, that's great. Not everyone can. Not everyone right. can financially. Not everyone can logistically. Not everyone can because it's just not who they are and where they're at. And thank God we live in a world where there are many ways to connect, right? But 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 um, this is, you know, it's kind of like. Do you see that little tempest in the teacup that happened with during the the Chiron Tanachi, the the Bible quiz, yeah. where, yes. where whoever it was, it was like the director of the quiz or somebody said, no, like, it was it was it was, Av, it was Av Shalom Kor, the famous Hebrew linguist who has oh, right. been moderating this event for 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 years and years. He's considered the person who speaks Hebrew the best in the country. By the way, he's wow. from an American background, oh, uh, and that's yes, right. and that's part of it. That's part of it that he and he is a. Died in the blue. He, he's died in the Tchelet. That's what I call him. Died in the Tchelet Zionist. Okay. And, uh, and, and he made these little remarks, mini, tiny, snipey remarks that were like, well, how could you be happy you live in the diaspora? Uh, <laughs> so, so a lot of people got angry at him. Not so much the diaspora, but other Israelis who felt that he was uh, talking was down to, to the diaspora. And kind of, uh, you know, what do you, what do you mean there's something secondary in terms of, in, in terms of the you know hierarchy of, of of goodness that you're living in the diaspora, that's that's wrong to say. And I think he he could have said it a little gentler, maybe if he had to say it. But um, but the bottom Listen, line is that you're right that people got upset with him. And and I think part of the the tension there, and it's interesting, I didn't realize it was it was mostly Israelis that got upset, is that um, the 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 power of being in Israel is the power of having a platform to succeed in our mission. If we're not willing to focus on mission, on a collective effort to bring redemption, not just to our people, but to the world as a whole. So, so yeah, so like what, like I don't, I, you know, live where it works for you in your individualistic life. Um, and that's why, unfortunately, there's a segment of our society even here today that would leave if they could, or at least talks about that as if it were, you know, like, you know, here or there, Berlin, Tel Aviv, what difference does it make to me? It's because another sort of, Failure is perhaps a little bit too dramatic. Another place where we're lagging 
is in digging deeply into our national historic spiritual mission and educating everyone, not just about it as a concept, but activists. Like, like what are you doing right now to push the project forward? Right. And and that's one of my messages when I'm when I'm in in front of audiences in America a lot of times or outside of the land of Israel, which is what's the step that you take, and and that's why I've I don't only uh, preach Aliyah because I feel that's the highest of the steps, but there are many intermediary steps that you could take, many steps you could take towards the project, including as I always say to people, uh, drink Israeli wine, especially Friday night, buy Israeli wine, excellent to buy from Judea and Samaria, the so-called West Bank. And drink some good settler wine, where you're going to feel that that you're walking in the footsteps of the fathers and the mothers and the prophets, uh, and you're part of it, and not because you want to support it, but because you want it in your veins, inside your body. So you want to be part of it. You want it to be part of you. Okay, Rabbi Mike, we've spoken for 30 minutes. Just to remind people, um, I'm I'm happy to host you today on my Facebook and YouTube page, and, and on the Ishai Fleischer Show uh, at the Land of Israel Network, LandofIsrael.com. Uh, and we are live, live, live. We used we used to record this before Corona in in podcast form, then put it out. Now we are actually live, live, live. So that's a lot of fun. And speaking of live, we have some folks that are saying hi. We have Sarah Israel saying shalom, and she's got all cute little signs there, including uh, Star of David, the Earth, and a peace sign. Lee Rosen says, "Great quotation from Rev Mike. You don't need to be perfect to be a hero." Right. Very good. And uh, Ratnawati uh, says shalom. And she also gives the um, uh, the uh, the Indian uh, Namaste sign, so she may be from those areas. And Casimo uh, says, "Big," he says, 13 viewers, big contents, right? We don't have a, we actually have 21 viewers right now, but big content." <laughs> and uh, and also Shalom, sh excuse me, Shaul says, "Thank you both from Malad Dumim, one of our favorite places in the land of Israel." Rabbi Mike, we've, that's right. We've been speaking for 30 minutes. Let's get to the Torah portion. We have a lot to cover. Now, let's get to the Torah portion. Um, all right, I'm just picking from the stuff that I that I picked out here. Uh, number one is I wanted to get to the the mitzvah uh, of counting seven years, seven times, the cycle of sevens. Um, um, wait, but just one second. Liad says, do you feel we're, my good friend Liad, Rabbi Liad Brody says, do you feel we're putting up a decent fight on social media against these characters like Rashida? I don't think we have the hot. I don't think we're the hot social media. That's that's if you ask me. I don't think yeah. we're hot, and I think we're not hot. Now, my opinion is is because we're not fully robust and honest. Like I, I don't think like we're we're like like if we would be like more like clear what we are, what we believe, in, and be like more gritty about it, and you know what I mean. But since we always try to like kind of you know say it a little bit softer, we're always trying to soften the stances, soften who we really are, soften our position. Well, we're, uh, we're, I, we're people of uh, of nuance and complexity, and, and right. it, doesn't, it doesn't carry that well in the world right. of Twitter. I mean, I mean, imagine, imagine. And you know what's making me think to do it? Imagine if there was a picture of a lady like Gal Gadot with an Israeli flag draped over her, holding a little dog dressed with a Palestinian flag. Right. Can you imagine so, what that would do? We get a lot of reactions. Also, by the way, we don't have to go into it now, but whose hand is the dog licking? That's yeah, what I want to know. Yeah, who's it? I feel like it's the Euros. That's what I, I feel no, like the Euros. No, I think that that blue sleeve is uh, is a little indicative of uh, 
of, of who is actually controlling the dog. Who? Oh, the Israelis? Yes. It, the, so the, we're going to go to analysis. All right, good. You said right. it, I didn't say it. All right, here we go. First thing is uh, the Torah portion. Now we're in the, let me just bring it up so people could see it a little bit. Screen share. And what's that? So you can play with the platform that you love so much. Yeah, I love it so much. It's true. And we're in the Torah reading for Behar, the Torah portion of Behar. Oh, perfect. There it is right there. Okay. I use, uh, when I when I go to the internet and I want to see Torah portion, I think that Chabad.org does a great job of putting up Torah portion. There are many more commentaries, but they have Rashi right there in Hebrew and in English. And if we go to the ver verse 6 of chapter 25, it says, Vaita Shabbat Haaretz. And the land uh, on the seventh year fallow, right, we have this idea of a sabbatical year. The the land will will have a Shabbat Haaretz. It will have a, a, a Sabbath, a Sabbath of the land. And this the Sabbath of the land is supposed to mimic the idea of the Sabbath that, that human beings need rest on the seventh day, the idea of a Shabbat and recognition that God is the creator on the seventh day. That's a Jewish, that's a commandment for Jewish people. So too, on the seventh year, the land has to rest. And this is one of the premises throughout the whole rest of the two Torah portions that we're going to be covering here yes. uh, is, is this idea that there are, there is a, uh, the land is a persona. It's a personality. It has its own traits. Uh, it, it can take things and not take things. Uh, and it needs rest. And it needs a certain kind of rest. And it needs a year for the land to also kind of have a spiritual time. So that's the 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 premise. Now, Shabbat Haaretz, I have said that this corona period has been like a Shabbat Haaretz, as though the globe went on a global Sabbath. There's been a global Sabbath, especially in terms of nature. Yes. Nature has had a Sabbath from us. Would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the pictures out there have been overwhelming of like animals returning to habitat, the, the skies clearing in places where people haven't seen the horizon in decades, you know. And, and um, it's just one of those things that we just need to keep pointing out that, that um, there is no going back to what was. So therefore, if there is something that we found in this enforced confinement that we want to preserve then it's in our power to do so no but but um yeah go ahead I, I just wonder i just wonder if we're going to speed up to the point that we're going to totally forget this whole period and it's not going to be remembered people want to but but the reality is, is first of all i'm not a believer that that um we're done right, right. this this i see in our in our society in particular right now there's a sense of like done people like the mask is like down below the chin or it's on my hand and like the, the buses are filling up, the you know, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know, I don't think that it's going to be that quick, A. B, the economic wave, we have not yet really begun to understand right. what's happened. Right. Once That's China right. and the United States, the, two, the world's two biggest economies, not to mention what's happened to the European Union, right, right are, are taking the type of blow they're taking, that, the, that's like a, a, a slow motion wave. Right. And by the way, interesting that you mentioned China, um, we have a guest in town right now. Secretary of State Pompeo flew in for a few hours. Hold on, look at this. Here we go. Well, I have I have one of the classic Pompeo wines. Pompeo wine bottles, and ostensibly, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo is here to talk about um, actually limiting cooperation with China. That is one of the big topics, uh, yeah. ostensibly. Uh, that's what that's what news reports are coming out and saying. Um, 
um, amongst uh, along with other things, and probably the discussion about annexation and and uh, and moving forward with and the. And I uh, imagine the, a little bit of strategic talk about Iran. Right. And Iran. Okay. Okay. Well, I wanted to say about the arts. Yeah. Go ahead. It's a very important concept, and the seven times seven cycle, which, by the way, we're also now in the the time of the Omer counting, which is another annual seven times seven cycle, and so. What does it mean that the that the land will have a have a rest? It has Shabbat because Shabbat you you use that phrase, which is correct. That Shabbat is a time in which we recognize God as Creator, but Shabbat is also a time in which we recognize ourselves in the world as something which is intrinsic and not a means to an end. We're not just a, a doing machine, we're not even a creating machine. We're a being, right? And and the, you you find a sense of wholeness of self which is not about what you do, but rather about what you are on Shabbat. In the same way, the danger of the relationship to land as a means to an end, so that which we use to get what we want, is that it's incredibly destructive and it, and it will create an economic structure and a culture which will undermine the foundations of its own existence, which is sadly happening in the world today. Whereas Shabbat Ha'aretz is not just about, hey guys, take a break. So just recognize that the land doesn't exist for us, mm. it's not a means to the ends of our needs. Right. It has kedusha, it has sanctity, right. and right. the primary definition of sanctity is a thing which has an intrinsic nature, and not just yeah. one which is a utility. I get what you're saying, and I really love it a lot. Uh, I, I want to kind of just say it another way, so that some people that, that maybe didn't quite catch what you're saying is like, it's like it's like being married. It's like the other person's not there to fulfill your needs. That other person is real. That other person has got a life and a personality and a soul, and you got to care for that person. And if, and if mutual needs are net, met and they should be in, in a marriage, that's great. Uh, but, it's, but it's a love, it's a relationship, it's a building, it's a giving back and forth. And what you're saying is sometimes when we're in the mode of utility and we're, you know, we're working the land, we're working the land, and we're working our lives, and like you sometimes forget to like have that relationship, to see the other as a, as a valued thing. And that's what I started with by saying that the Torah portion kind of seems to indicate a few different ways that the land is a, is an entity. It's a persona. If anything, I would say now that I think about it, there's three different ways in which the Torah portion says to you that the land of Israel is a persona. One, it needs a Sabbath. Two, if you misbehave, it'll kick you out mm -hmm. and take its Sabbaths, but it'll vomit you out if you misbehave. And me say it 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 needs a rest. It also does not like idolatry or licentiousness, bad things. It'll kick you out. And three, towards the end, it says, "And I will remember Abraham. I will remember Isaac. I'll remember Jacob. And I will remember the land." As and the Emabanim Smecha says, that means to say, even if I can't remember the forefathers, I'm going to remember the land of Israel because I have a covenant with the land itself. The land is also an entity, if you will. People who watch Star Trek, I've said this in other years, people who watch Star Trek have an easier time understanding that a chunk of land will be, you know, have a personality and is a creature, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I tough, mean. tough. Okay, I wanted to get to the next topic, which is, uh, it says it says in the Torah portion, verse 8, let's just look at it for a second, and I'll just let me put it up properly here. This is the way I want to put it up, and here it is. So verse 8 it says, Usfarta lecha, Usfarta lecha, Sheva Shabbatot Shanim, Sheva Shanim, Sheva Pamim. 
you shall count for yourself seven sabbatical years, seven years, seven times. And the days of these seven sabbatical years shall amount to 49 years for you. Fine. Now, why did I want to stop on this? Because, because when it comes to uh, when it comes to counting, do you remember last week you said that 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 the um, that the era the, the the time between Elul and Rosh Hashanah is uh, excuse me the, between Elul and the end of Sukkot is a time of personal fixing. You're fixing your mm-hmm. like personal thing, and then we also have a, a period that we have a national uh, a, a national accountability, a national rectification. This thing here, seven years, who, who is counting seven years? Is it individuals that are counting seven years? No, it should be a national goal to count seven years, right? But it specifically says you, individuals, should count the seven years. And when it talks about the 49 days of counting uh, from, from second day of Passover until Shavuot, till Pentecost, it says you, plural, should count this. When mm. you would think that it would be something that is specific to individuals because we're doing individual rectification. So so here it's like I want every single individual in the nation to count those seven years. Our national goals are important on the individual level as well. And the individual is important on a national level as well. Meaning to say the state, the country should not be more important than the individual. You should all count the, the, the 49 days that helps individual people get better. That's part of our national identity, every individual person. So I, I think that the Torah purposefully switches the, uh, the, the, the who's the counter in order to tell you that, that this is important. This, this seven years and seven times seven heading towards the Jubilee is important on a personal level and certainly on a national level. But it's, I think it's a critical insight because with the tensions between the particular and the collective that the Torah sort of engages on every front, we, we really are encouraged to understand that that the purpose of society is to allow the individual to enter into relationship with God. But the purpose of an individual entering into relationship with God is to build a better world, right? It's never a um, sort of narcissistic like society exists for me as a platform for my relationship because the only reason my relationship comes to only or let's say the only way my relationship comes to fruition is through the actions in the world that god wants me to do to make the world a better place so there's like an, almost an iterative process there so it's a nice insight there thank you um later on in verse chapter 25 verse 23 let's look at it together mm-hmm it says, uh, it looks like I've got to go to Shaney here. Just one second, 23. Loading it's it up. Shlishi. Shlishi. Oh, it's in Shlishi, is it? Okay, very good. Yeah, there was a short Shaney. Right, the Torah portions are divided into seven uh, seven parts. So verse 23 says, The land should not be sold permanently. Uh, for the land belongs to me. God says, I'm the actual owner of the land. For you are strangers and residents with me. That reminds us, of course, of the great phrase that Abraham says when he's purchasing a land. He says, He says, I am a stranger and a resident with you, he says to the Hittites. But here says Hashem, like, look, I want you to follow all these laws, but the bottom line is you can't sell it. You can't mistreat the land. 
you can't sell it for eternity because it's not yours to sell. One of the key things to understand here is it's my land. You are dwelling with me. It's my land as opposed to you thinking that it's your land to sell. And on a certain level, we belong to it because it creates our collective existence and we're giving the deep expression to the relationship between creator and created that the land in its own right already embodies. It's only humanity that can deviate. You know what I'm saying? It's like creation without us gives expression to the will of the creator flawlessly. So humanity, because of our special gifts and our particular burdens, are, we're the only segment of creation that can kind of like deviate from that plan. So mm -hmm. the whole idea is we belong to the land because the thing that the land can't do without is give that higher articulation of the divine. Will. Right. Mm. Right. And, and, um, the, on a simple, by the way, I don't want to miss in the in the sort of spiritual poetics, the very important simple economic assertion here, which is this is what is known in economic terms as usufruct, right? It's not private property. It's it's we own the the usage of the land. We don't right. own the land itself, mm -hmm. and, and that does a couple of things. First of all, it's just humbling, which I think that the tone of the verse, as you captured nicely, is meant to do. But it also encourages us to build a different type of economic system. And this is the coming wave. It's bound up with the environmental problems that have been created by our current economic system. We need right. to begin to delve deeply into the Torah and try to understand without some sort of simplistic sense that we're just going to recreate what the Torah wants, you know, et cetera. That's not the way our sages related to the Torah. But we need right. to delve deeply into it to understand what is the real wisdom of how you build a society right. of justice, of prosperity, Right uh, of equity and vision and growth that doesn't just eat the foundations out from under itself in the way in which we're doing today. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is so important. And and we, you sometimes walk into the bank and you think to yourself, I'm just trying to buy a house here in the land of Israel, and I have to pay through the nose this 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 overpriced uh, what's it called mashkanta mortgage, and and you think to yourself. Wait a minute, shouldn't it be that the laws of this land, the Torah, the way we all make money is so to help me grow? And so when I grow, you'll grow, we'll all grow together. Why do I get the sense that you're trying to choke me as opposed to what the Torah says here? You know, do not take, uh, what's it called, Rabit? Uh, interest. Interest. interest yeah. You know, do not take interest from, 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 your, from you know, your, your Jewish brother and sister. Uh, don't, don't choke. This, that, that's like my my simple way of reading the whole thing. Don't choke the the other residents of the land with you. Listen, at the risk of sounding like a socialist, the 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 Torah doesn't envision the accumulation of private property as the end goal of economic activity. Right. Right. Now, the Torah does allow for private property on the realm of what we call metaltalin, movable goods. Torah doesn't really recognize private property on the on the in the realm of of uh, land and certainly in its in its context that was the basis of all economic activity and so, and so this is what i'm saying so the the the, the sort of utility although, although it's important to say that that abraham isaac and jacob were rich it's just important to say that there's the story is not I, against I, I, not against wealth not against prosperity but it doesn't envision what you said is that wait shouldn't the, the purpose of this be helping me grow and thrive right i mean the the, the purpose of economic activity in our current system is is to maximize the ability to consume. That is its purpose. That's the structure that we have. And, and that by definition, since we don't live in an infinite resource pool, is going to destroy itself. 
But the Torah envisions more of what you were saying, which is the purpose of economic activity is is growth and and health and wealth of the individual and society, spiritually, materially, you know, physically, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and that's a that's a different aim because it would force us as a society to try to identify very clearly what are the primary values toward which we want to work. And then, yeah, like what the actual economic system is, it just depends on what works. I, I'm going to say something radical. I have said this in conferences, you know, because of my political leanings. So I end up speaking a lot of times on conservative, in the conservative world, conservative panels. But I say something that conservatives don't like, American conservatives. I say, look, socialism comes from the word social. And when you have a social fabric, so you're more given to being social. In simple terms, if a girl in Ramad Gan needs a hip surgery and she's my sister, not my actual sister, who's by the way listening uh, right now on the show, uh, Rachel Fleischer Vinnick. Yeah, but like, but my, 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 my she's my as part of your family. Right, she's part of my family, and so I want to contribute towards that surgery. Yeah. So you might say that's socialized medicine. Well. Yeah, and the Torah seems to say there's certain elements that I certainly want you to be socialized. Uh, there are other elements. If you're a person who works hard, harder than other people, and you've got a wherewithal and you've got a business means, sure. You know what I mean? Get what you deserve. But so, there, but there, you know what's beautiful, though? The Torah puts at the center of all this the temple. Mm -hmm, you know, right. it's often missed that, that the, the tithing system is a means for conspicuous consumption. Like, today... You know, you go on, I don't know, Instagram or, or wherever, and you'll see the world's richest people consuming conspicuously. It's a big thing. Pictures and, and yachts and this. But, but think about the fact that the Torah says, now take 10% of your wealth, go to Jerusalem, and have right. a party. Right. Right? And Because it recognizes that there is indeed a human need uh, which uh, is being fulfilled. Uh, a holy party, though. A holy party for sure, right? But right. there's a human it's not, need. No, because because some people hear the word party, they may think you're talking you know, about... Hedonism. No, no, no. But it is, by the way, it's not hedonism, but the only things you can spend that, what's called Meister Shane, you want to get in the details, but the only thing you can spend it on are, are things that you, people derive pleasure from, meat, wine, oil, right? Meaning the idea is indeed to bring enjoyment, physical enjoyment sure. in, a, in, in a sacred environment in order to sort of like take that desire we all have to both enjoy the world and to be seen enjoying the world and to elevate it toward gratitude and sharing. Right, and it's right. an interesting thing that you said the word seen, and I think I know what you're referring to. Uh, there's a mitzvah of lirot ulehiraot, to see and be seen. Just think about the yeah. fact that the only place you can spend 10% of your income is Jerusalem. That's it. Right, right. Everybody. Ah, beautiful. You know, the reason I'm saying ah is because I, I could feel it. People who have been part of coming to Yerushalayim during the three festivals can feel it. I had an idea that, that in Israel we would issue a card like a like a like one of these uh, subway uh, the, these light rail cards that we have uh, Ravkov that we have in Israel like a yellow card and this yellow card would be called a regalim card and you could amass points in it and you could only spend that in Jerusalem and it would help you with parking help you with restaurants That's a great example imagine the tax system taking the tithe if ten percent if what whatever right and it going directly there and that freeing up Jerusalem. To focus on its real mission, which is educating the world in the depths of the human experience. Right. The Beautiful, love it, love it. By the way, I I, I think uh, similarly, uh, there should be a. It's such a big thing. You you know what I learned in Saudi Arabia? They have a ministry of the Hajj. Uh huh. 
a ministry dedicated well, I mean, to the Hajj. There are a billion plus Muslims in the world. I mean, you've got right. to have somebody in charge. <laughs> you got to be in charge, and it's a big thing. So you you have a. We need a ministry of the Regalim, or at least yeah. under the Jerusalem affairs, it needs to well, be. I'm sure like a, in this government, they're more than willing to give it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> they give it to. <laughs> Very good. Okay, let's get to some of the most seminal verses in the Torah. Uh, especially in this week's Torah portion, and an amazing Rashi there. So we're going to go to chapter twenty-five. One second, let me let me get it set up so we go see it correctly. Uh, chapter twenty-five, and the verses are thirty-eight and on. Thirty-eight and on. I'm coming. Yeah. You're you bet you did. You bet. You bet. So let's just let's just uh, make sure we got thirty-eight. Am I there? There it is. Uh, oh, there it is. And give me Rashi, please. Fashion style here. What's that? Yeah, yeah. That's no, good. But I want everybody on this uh, that's Mine watching is. to be able to see it. I have also the book in front of me. But we go to we go to th we go to thirty eight, and it says, "Ani Hashem Elokechem, I am Hashem your God, Asher Otseti etchem Eretz Mitzrayim, who took you out of the land of Egypt, latet lachem et Eretz Canaan, to give you the land of Canaan, liot lachem la Elohim, to be unto you a God." Um, and says Rashi, um, to give you the land of Canaan as a reward for accepting my commandments. And, uh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting phrasing that you get the land of Israel as a reward for accepting my commandments. And, and in other places, it'll say the only reason you get to keep the land of Israel is for accepting my commandments, Mike, or my commandments really only, only, only fully are in full fruition in the land of Israel. Remember, Rashi is most likely quoting the Midrash. I don't know if right. I can't see quite, the screen's not big enough, but oftentimes one of the nice things actually about the Chabad site is that they'll cite the source that Rashi's quoting. But yeah. um, what he's certainly, his language is echoing, echoing is schar mitzvah mitzvah. Right. right. That the reward for mitzvah is the opportunity to do more mitzvot. So when it says, right, that that uh, they give you the land as a reward that you're know, for we're sort of accepting my mitzvot, and therefore you'll be able to do more mitzvot in the land of of Canaan. Right. The the, the bottom line is is in, in various ways that you could that you could read it. The bottom line is two things are locked into one another: the land of Israel and the keeping of the Torah. Oh, yeah. Both of those are, by the way, called Morasha. The Torah is called an eternal inheritance, Morasha, and the land of Israel is called Morasha. It's an eternal inheritance. These things are engaged to one another. They're, they're, they are united, the land of Israel and the keeping of the Torah. These things go together. And notice that the generation that kind of started up the the uh, the modern state of Israel were a secular variety, and this is a secular state, but more and more we're moving back to our natural mode of, of Judaism, which is a land of Israel, which is centered around Judaism, or Judaism that is centered around the land of Israel. The, the, those are those are both true. But then let's read this very famous Rashi uh, that's uh, that follows immediately afterwards. It says, "Liot lachem Elohim to be unto you a God." Shikola, this is a, a ta, this is a Gemara, right? Ktubot one ten b, as as uh, as it says here in the Chabad page, like you pointed out. It says, "Shikol hadar beeretz Israel." Anybody who lives in the land of Israel, ani lo Elohim. I am to him a God. But anybody who leaves it, is like he serves idolatry. This is a very famous, uh, uh, Rashi quotes this. I think the Rambam also quotes this in a place. 
but it's a very powerful statement. And Rashi, who's living in Provence, uh, writing this, uh, this this powerful phrase that that I am I am the Torah says I am on to I'm gonna the verses I'm gonna give you the land of Israel, so that I could be a God unto you. Those things are linked. Those things are linked up. I mean, he, the Gemara is a little bit more, um, let's say, judgmental <laughs> than, than, <laughs> yeah. than even the, what happened at the at the Bible quiz. In the sense that, that um, it's important to remember that 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 God is never an abstraction, and and unfortunately, both religion and philosophy lend themselves to the attitude that God's an abstraction. So therefore, I mean, and and since God is the ultimate. The ultimate. We just we have to qualify that. So, of course, God's the same in Brooklyn as God is in Nairobi as God is in Jerusalem. That's not a question. The difference is you're not the same, and therefore the relationship which is available is not the same. And I think it's very specific that that this is the general name was I will be to you as a God. It doesn't say I'll be Hashem. Doesn't say that the the uh, sort of uh, the the particular relationship between the Jewish people and Am Yisrael will be actualized only in the land of Israel. It says, I'm going to be actual uh, Elohim, meaning you, in the land of Israel is where you can engage me through the world, where your actions will show that I am God. You understand the difference I'm making? It's not that someone who lives out of, out of, the, out of the land by definition doesn't have a relationship to God. It's that there's a specific embodied world-changing relationship which is available in the land of Israel. I just want to say that what you just said right now is true in the text, but it's also very true in real life. Meaning to say people who live here know that on, on, on so many levels. One of the things that I've learned as, as I've matured, I'm still trying to mature. As, Let me know when I've that matured. happens. I yeah. have to figure it out. And when, it, when, when it gets fully great, the, the black means I've not yet matured totally, but like, I've realized that truths, when there's a real truth, it is so deep that there are many, many, many levels of analysis, many levels of understanding that are all true. Yeah. And the other way to stand that, by the way, is as you grow, it grows, meaning you discover more in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you also forget some, sadly, because you sometimes reach great conclusions <clears throat> earlier on and you forget them. But my, my point too is that. The, the 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 what you just said that like the land of Israel embodies Torah when you live in it you, it's 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 you're, you're fully kind of plugged into it and and you feel like I'm saying it's not just a textual thing it, it's if you live here and you might even be secular and you might be Haredi or you might be I don't know what you feel that there's a God in this land um by the way some people complain about the city of Jerusalem that it's very intense I've heard that oh, yeah. many times it's quite intense. And that intensity is not in any fast or dangerous traffic, or or there's nothing there's nothing ostensibly so intense about it. No, but there is something there. It's it's life a live just, wire. Yeah, just life is very intense there. Yeah, it's yeah, it's true. just intense and intense and 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 I I personally found that there was no other than the only similarity that I found was New York City, Manhattan. Interesting, yeah, by the way. There, Go the ahead. intensity I think it has a different route. Right. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. But I just mean to say it's hyper intense. It's another. Po it's a pole in this world. It's it's the. I called it a long time ago. Israel is the spiritual superpower, or 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 in in, in that case, it's the capital of spirituality. 
is Jerusalem. All right, but we got we got to start heading towards the end. Um, so I want to get to a few more verses. Let's get to, to the the good news. There's wonderful promises uh, for the Jewish people if they follow the Torah, if they follow God's ways in the land of Israel. And there's a lot to say there, but let's just go to verse uh, chapter 26. We've now skipped to the next Torah portion, <clears throat> excuse me, which is Bechukotai. And let's hit uh, verse 11 of chapter 26. Let me just pull it up on the screen here. And there it is. Okay, one of the greatest blessings of them all. I'll give my dwelling in your midst, which is either the tabernacle or the temple, that's a higher level, in the, in your midst. My spirit will not reject you. Or another modern way of saying it is, I won't be grossed out by you. Am I going to spit you out? What's that? Uh, uh, as Rashi says that... Uh, uh, right? Meaning it's a, it's a, it's an expunging. That's why. That's why. Um, uh, right. The old whatever. the old vomiting. The old the old uh, will, will, uh, the land will vomit you out. Right. And yeah. and 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 God is God is um, how should we say He's holy, and He's not going to withstand our unholiness to walk amongst us. Although, luckily, there are also verses that 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 God says. Even in your bad times, I'm with you. Even when you're low, I'm with you. Well, I mean, when it comes specifically regarding the the mission, <laughs> uh, you know, right. that dwell amongst you even in the midst of your impurity. Right, but that's a kindness. That's not yeah. the highest level. The highest oh, level yeah. is here, like that you'll be a holy people, and I can walk amongst you. And it says exactly that. I shall walk walk amongst you or within you. Even within every single one of you, I will be within you. I'm going to be unto you a God. And you will be a nation unto me. You'll be my people. Such a such a powerful, powerful phrase. And of course, when we hear the word hitalachti about God, when I walk amongst, we of course remember the Garden of Eden. And there it is, Rashi says, I'm going to I'm going to walk amongst you as I was almost one of you. You won't be you won't be shocked for me. I'll put you on such a level that you'll be able to deal with me, like Moses. Can it be that, that you won't fear me, God forbid? No. Therefore, it says, I'll be unto you a God. Meaning so you'll still fear me and respect me, but I'll be close to you. You'll be able to, I'll be able to deal with you, you'll be able to deal with me. Can I can I use that kind of modern phraseology? Sure, go for it. I mean, you just did, right? So, the, I mean, would you say that that is the penultimate of? Uh, I mean, that's um, the purpose. I mean, going back to the one of the themes that's been flowing through our conversation so far was that is that without a sense of what it is you're trying to achieve, then your actions will at best be harmless. You know, um, whereas if you have a sense of what the vision you're working toward looks like, then even if you're challenged or you suffer failures, et cetera, et cetera, in the end of the day, you can keep that for a momentum. And so one of the reasons I think this is the highest blessing is we can understand that the, the vision that the Torah puts forward of the purpose of the Jewish people is to connect heaven and earth, right? And, and, and every individual has a chance to do that within their own heart and their actions, but we have a special grace as a people, as a nation to do it on behalf of all creation, right? That's why Avram says, sorry, God says to Avram that, that you know, 
And I'll say, I'm like, go leave everything you know to the land, I'll show you. And what? I'll make you there what? A goigadol, a great nation, not a great person. Right. God was already a great person, or God wouldn't have reached out. The vision is that there should be a people as a whole who have a capacity to connect heaven and earth in a way in which the whole world can benefit. And that's really what I see in this verse. And you mentioned Abraham, which is the prop, the great transition to the last verse that I want to cover today, which is a verse uh, 42 uh, oh, of chapter yeah. 26. Right. Right. And, and, the, and the chapter, this, and the verse says there, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. So it goes in reverse order. Uh, I will remember my, my covenant with Abraham and I'm going to remember the land. And this is a wild Rashi, um, wild Rashi that says that five places in the Tanakh is Yaakov's name spelled with this extra vav, so as to make a Yaakov? But we usually we just have um, we don't we don't need that vav. We just uh, have a, a grammar uh, law that 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 makes it Yaakov without it. Uh, and at the same time, there are five places in the Tanakh where Eliyahu Elijah's name is written in short form, very famously uh, at the end of the Tanakh. Uh, uh, Right. Oh, safe in the, this is at the end of Navim, right? Thank you. And so it's Eliyahu, but spelled short in a short way. Says Rashi, Yaakov took you took these vavs from Elijah as uh let me read it in the English. The five instances of the yeah, the vibe symbolize the five. Oh, wait, where is that? Oh, no, no, no. It says the five places. Jacob took the letter Vav from the name of Elijah as security, collateral, that he will come and herald the redemption of Jacob's children. And they add in parentheses from the Gurariya. And since this is Elijah's mission in life, his name will remain incomplete, as it were, until he fulfills it speedily in our days. The five instances of the Vav symbolize the five fingers of the hand. This security arrangement between Jacob and Elijah was sealed by a handshake. Interesting. Interesting. Not okay. I'm not doing, doing handshakes anymore. <laughs> no more. Right. Right. It was. It was just a nod. It was a nod. Uh, but the point is, is that is that uh, hidden in that promise that God is going to remember the forefathers and the land is also a, a, a hidden promise of redemption that will come when Elijah the prophet will herald uh, the, the messianic period, the messianic times. Well, uh, I mean, and, you can do your homework, but in, in my reading, um, Zechira we translate it as remembering when it's said in reference to God is always a redemptive power. Mm -hmm. Every single usage. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I could see that with Noah, with, with Rachel, et cetera, with Sarah. Uh, yeah. These are all, these are all Rosh Hashanah. We, we, we have the Zechirot. Um, and we also actually say these six Zechirot in the end of Davening sometimes. Some people do anyway. Uh, this Torah portion, if we summed it all up, is really about the laws of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, keeping the land in sanctity, uh, being and, and having real security coming from the maker of this world. We didn't touch so much about it, but uh, you're going to lay in, in, in security. Why? Because you followed my laws and I'm your protector. Because you, I mean, these are the laws of the society as a whole, because you built a world in which I can dwell, and that's what makes you secure. Before we go, Rabbi Mike Foyer, I just want to read uh, a few of the comments. Um, uh, um, says Stanley, he says, 
what do you do in terms of tours for Gentiles? The answer is come on down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean? Whatever you're looking to see. Yeah. Like, you, you know, we're, we're, we're here to, to teach and, and uh, people who are open-minded and, and want to hear about, uh, about our history and about our, the, the Torah and about God's promise to Abraham and the purchase and all that. Just come on down. We are, we are uh, equal opportunity teachers. So please come on down and, uh, and, uh, and we'll keep it 100% open to you. We are not going to limit uh, it from our, our Gentile friends. Um, but of course, you know, come, come to listen, not to preach some, some other form. Um, says, uh, uh, Zara Israel says, yes, it is a Shabbat for humanity and our earth. It is also humbling. She's talking about the coronavirus. Uh, I'm going to move on. Um, there's my sister. She says great stuff again. God bless you. My sister, Racheli. uh, Jay says awesome stuff. Stanley says great talk. Um, and then we got here, here's somebody very important all the way from, all the way from Sweden says Erica from Sweden. Her last name is Nordstrom. I like you already. I feel like I'm back in, uh, in Bergenfield. Uh, Erica from Sweden says, uh, Shalom. Great comments. Rabbis as usual. Blessings to all of you. Shalom and blessings to you, Erica from Sweden. Thank you so much for joining us and keep on being uh, uh, connected with us, please. Uh, um, I also want to say Lou says, Excellent share and insights. Thank you, Yishai and Rav Mike. And um, and says, Stanley, thank you. We shall come with listening ears. Amen. Amen. Um, and let, let's, last one, says um, Yehudi, Zara says, Yehudi has all four letters of our creator's name with the addition of the Dalet, which is a door. Dalet is like a delet, which is a door. This inspires awe. So there you go. Folks from around the world are connected to us, Rabbi Mike, and I want people to Check out uh, all the stuff that you're doing. You just put out a great podcast that I am so excited for, which is about the prelude to the Six Day War. I'm totally psyched for that. Slowly there. I'm 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 psyched for the prelude. I like Mark and I. We like the like lead ups, you know, in the movies. Not when it's like the big stuff is happening, but the lead up, the build up, the training, the whole thing. So we're excited for for that. Please uh, check out Rav Mike's website, JewishStory.co, his other show uh, on the Land of Israel Network, which is called the Jewish Story. And also uh, Rav Mike is found at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Rav Mike. Did I miss anything? That'll do it. That'll do it. Good. We're learning the Torah portion of Behar Bechukotai. Uh, and help us please keep broadcasting by uh, visiting ishaifleischer.com forward slash donate, uh, you know, buy a cup of coffee, great way to, to, uh, to, to support, you know, uh, broadcasting. I don't, I don't even say podcasting anymore because now we have, uh, we're doing it in different forms. And again, way I recommend, that. what's that? So we're way beyond that. We're way beyond that. We're, 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 we're doing it real live, you know, real time in live. And of You're course, also check out. Now. <laughs> and check out hebronfund.org uh, to visit the fathers and the mothers Rabbi Mike Foyer, thank you so much for joining me I want to wish you Always a Shabbat pleasure. Shalom God bless you God bless you, Shabbat Shalom and thank you for coming on and thank you folks for being with me lots of love from the land of Israel lots of blessings from the land of blessings and please don't be embarrassed to uh, throw out a uh, an email Yishai at thelandofisrael.com or Yishai at yishaifleischer.com. Also very good, Yishai at yishaifleischer.com. Uh, and just finishing up, Bill says, Shalom from Tulun, Illinois. Illinois. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that properly, but hi, Bill from Illinois. Shalom. Uh, Erica says, we met in Tisha B'Av 2017. Baruch Hashem, let's meet again. And Marie 
uh, says Shalom from the UK. So we have, it's so beautiful to be able to connect to people around the world and connect over what? Over a love of the land of Israel, a love of Torah, and, and a love of others uh, who want to connect on these beautiful and holy levels. So Shabbat Shalom, everybody. God bless you. And of course, write me an email, Yishai at the land of Israel. Yishai, yeah, Yishai at the land of and Yishai at YishaiFleischer.com. You take your pick, whatever connects, whatever uh, uh, suits your fancy. But more than anything, brachot, blessings from the land of Israel, and shalom. All right, folks, that was Rabbi Mike Foyer. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Rav Mike, Rav Mike, he prefers Rav Mike and not Rabbi Mike. Rav Mike, and uh, connect with him. Uh, and it's so important to, to I, I don't feel like I've done my work for the week if I didn't do a Torah podcast where we discussed the Psukim, the eternal word of Hashem. It's just the only way to move forward. And as I said, uh, in, the, uh, in the Rabbi Mike, Rav Mike section, today's show is dedicated to Amit Ben Yigal, uh, who was killed in action this week. A beautiful, beautiful young man. And, uh, and uh, it breaks the heart that we lost him. This show is dedicated to him. If you want to dedicate the show to anybody or to anything, please write me an email, yishai at yishaifleischer.com or yishai at the land of Israel.com. Uh, it's really easy to connect. Um, and let's dedicate something. Let's dedicate some Torah learning or a show or, or a project. I have many, many important and interesting projects going on. So we'd love, to, uh, we'd love to connect with you on that. Let's listen now to my discussion with Dr. Sherry Sufi, uh, who is a linguist and a researcher of nationalism who studied the story of Israel as well about the question of is Israel a colonialist European enterprise or not. So this is very interesting. It's very much part of the narrative war, an important podcast, an important section of the podcast about a guy who, uh, about a, a man who wrote a very, very interesting piece and we'll be discussing it uh, right now. So without further ado, here we go. Poets, says W.G. Hoskins, make the best topographers. Now, I'm far from a poet, but I do love words, and you might even call me a storyteller. And when I look ahead on the road, I see on the horizon mountains and valleys, the likes of which we have not yet seen. Because I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Join Rav Mike Foyer for the best Jewish history podcast, The Jewish Story, on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com. All right, folks, shalom and welcome to another discussion here on the Shai Fleischer channel. Uh, we're going to be broadcasting stories and issues that uh, touch Israel, touch the story of Israel. And in this half hour, we have a, a wonderful expert, Sherry, Dr. Sherry Suf, uh, Sufi, Dr. Sherry Sufi. And he's a wonderful, wonderful uh, thinker and writer uh, out of West Australia uh, who has a Ph.D. in linguistics. And he also, amongst that, focused on a Hebrew language and Israeli national identity. And he wrote uh, an article recently, which I thought was absolutely fabulous. It was called Israel, Not a European Colony. You could see it on the Times of Israel. And I thought it was a, a quite important article that everybody has to get a chance to read. And we'll be reading some of it today, and we'll be talking with him also uh, about it. And uh, I guess the reason this is so important to me is because today, uh, as I've talked about on my various networks, and I'm sure you know, uh, we have a war 
it's not uh, a physical war as much. Yes, there's still uh, Iran's nuclear interests and there's Hezbollah and Hamas and there's still attacks here and there. But there's another kind of war that we're fighting today. And that war, I call it the narrative war. And I saw that Dr. Sherry Sufi uh, also likes that terminology. There's a narrative war. And that narrative war is out there to erase the Jewish narrative or to make it uh, ugly or dirty, uh, to besmirch the name of Israel. Now, the narrative war has a lot of actual very uh, focused tactics. One of the tactics is to undermine the history of Israel. And the big word is colonialism and occupation. Uh, these, these, go, these two terms go along with one another. And the basic idea is that Jews are white Europeans who have colonialized uh, and therefore occupied uh, Palestine and are there, th therefore foreigners and necessarily abusers. There's a logic here. And if you go out to social media, you're going to see that over and over and over again that there is such a, a narrative out there that Israel is a foreigner. Well, Sh Dr. Sherry Sufi wrote an article really debunking that, uh, and his style of writing is, is very special, uh, but he goes right at the heart, and, and sometimes not coming from a Jewish perspective, not coming from an internal Jewish kind of dialogue, but rather looking at it from the outside uh, he has a very powerful way of uh, of bringing it in. And so I am very pleased to have Dr. Sherry Sufi with us today. Dr. Sherry, how are you? Good to see you. Shalom, shalom. Thank you very much, Rabbi. It's good to be with you again. It's been a while since we met up over there. but uh, That's right. Yeah. And you're, you're a person who, who regularly comes in uh, to the land of Israel, and you bring to tourists, uh, but not just tourists, actually high-level folks, uh, policymakers from Australia uh, to Israel. And so I was always impressed with the fact that you were able to bring people, but mm -hmm. this article took it to a totally different level from my perspective. And here's the article again from the Times of Israel. And again, it's called uh, Israel is not a European colony. Why don't you just start with just telling me what, what brought you to write this? Why, why did you feel the need to write this? Yeah, it's out there, but why did you kind of tackle it? Well, the, the reason why I wrote the article is because I've been sufficiently exposed to the narrative that gets pumped out by uh, forces that are opposed to the state of Israel. And I think I've been, in a sense, fortunate enough to have had that level of understanding to get to the bottom of what it is that motivates them. And it's not a single thing, but one of the most uh, fundamental reasons why they tend to oppose the state of Israel is the reason that you mentioned in your intro. It's that they have this belief that the Jews from Europe who started the Zionist movement towards the end of the 1800s and began settling into the Levant region, which was then under the Ottoman Empire, are Europeans. Now, they weren't, and I've tried to ad address this issue, I guess, from the point of view that if Europeans historically didn't think of Jews in their midst as fellow Europeans, and those Jews did not think of themselves as Europeans, then it's not really up to third parties to make that decision on anyone's behalf. It's, uh, I mean, the whole point of, uh, you know, self-determination, we have this expression self-determination, is for people to determine what their group identity should be. It's not for third parties. And I thought that I would uh, put things in historical uh, perspective. Indeed you did. And uh, there's a lot of phrases here within the article that I want to tackle. Sure. 
so first thing you say, the, the Jewish exiles from Europe who began oh. settling in pre-state Israel had a prior historic and civilizational relationship with the land. They weren't colonizers. Oh. All right. So then, so then, you know, they'll say to you, first thing that's just generally denied. Am I, am I right that out there in the anti-Israel narrative, somehow the, the idea that Israel had a past in this country, in this land, had two commonwealths is somehow just like uh, erased out of the mainstream consciousness. How does that come about? Yeah, so there's people that have written entire PhD theses on this topic. I mean, it's very deep and complex. And part of the part of what makes it really uh, problematic to discuss is the fact that whilst Jewish history, um, I mean, it is unique. It is poorly understood, and that's not just by non-Jews. It's often poorly understood by Jews as well. Uh, so many Jews uh, don't stop to sort of realize the experiences of earlier generations. Now, I'll talk you through two sets of uh, unique experiences that only the Jewish people have had to that scale. Jewish history are divided up into two segments. So there's the thousand-year period from the establishment of the uh, ancient kingdom of Israel under King Saul, David, and Solomon, right up until the exile. There's that thousand-year period. Why is that period unique? Because you're in your native land, but you are constantly being invaded by foreigners, the Assyrians in 721 BC, the Babylonians in 597 BC, the Persians in 539 BC, the Greeks in 332 BC, then the Romans around about 63 BC, and then the Romans would be the last set of people that would rule over you. So for a long time, Jews are experiencing what you would call galut whilst you're in your own land. And then you enter stage two, when the temple gets destroyed in 70 CA, common era, or what others might call AD, and then in uh, 135 CE or AD, uh, Jews are in fact exiled from that land. So then you're experiencing Galut in other people's lands. Now, under normal circumstances, what would have happened is, I think, if most civilizations or nations had to experience something remotely like this, Galut at home, Galut overseas, they would likely have dissolved into other cultures, converted to another religion, lost their identity and become something else. The Jews are still here. Now that's something miraculous. And because people tend to not have a deep understanding of this journey, I mean, the mere few sentences I've said in the last few minutes are not widely known. And and because of that, people sort of look at Israel and they go, okay, well, these people came from Europe. Some of them resemble Europeans, so they must be Europeans, and therefore they don't belong here. And that's why the narrative war has to be won. We have to push back against that all the time. Every podcast is important, and so is every article. Right. Well, well, the, the narrative is not just somebody's opinion. It is a weaponized narrative. There, there's a purpose for this narrative. It's not that it just kind of came up and there's a different a different perspective, different outlook, different academic perspective. No, no, no. This is a weaponized narrative. There's a purpose for this narrative, and that is to undermine Jewish rights, national rights, even Jewish uh, self-narrative. I need to say the internal narrative of the Jewish people or the people around us or our, our allies. And when you undermine uh, other people's understanding of your narrative and you undermine that nation's sense of their own narrative, well, you weaken their position. And in lieu of being able to destroy Israel uh, with uh, rockets, knives, tanks, or jets, uh, the, the bad guys who want to undermine Jewish presence in the land of Israel, uh, and by the way, uh, I, I just, just, just kind of apropos today, I, I printed this out, 
which was uh, uh, an article that was written today or put out today anyway by Saib Arakat, the so-called chief negotiator of the Palestinian Authority. And he basically said, interestingly enough, he said there's been three fateful junctures Mm. in the story of Zionism. He Mm. says it's Balfour, Mm. the recognition of Jewish rights by the international community. Uh, Then the 1948 Nakba, which Mm. he means by that the uh, great uh, tragedy, the great, uh, what what is is the word they use? Uh, for Nakba, catastrophe, right? Catastrophe uh, of of the Israeli victory of the independence war, and he says the big third one is this: the the move towards annexation. And of course, he uh, uh, he sees this whole thing. He sees everything within uh, what Israel is doing as being uh, this colonialist project. And he keeps on saying this: this is colonialism. This is settlement. They've used the international community. They're really white Europeans. So therefore, the the narrative is weaponized. It's not just uh, it's not just something that that some people have an opinion on. What, what do you think about that? What do you think about the weaponization of narrative? Well, absolutely, it's not the weaponization that you talk about is not even a recent phenomenon. It's been weapon weaponized since the very beginning. I mean, when the uh, first Aliyah began happening around about 1882, and uh, when uh, Jews at the time predominantly from Europe. Um, began moving into the Levant. Uh, initially, there's this period when the local Arabs they actually see economic opportunity in the influx of of uh, European settlers within the the land, and they they weren't so uh, hostile at all times. But what happens is when the Ottoman structure collapses and the administration passes over from the Ottoman to British rule. Um, this is when substantial amounts of anti-Zionist activity is born, and it's always been weaponized. I mean, it's been to the opposition to Israel, I guess, has been, it predates the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. It was at its peak of violence between sort of 1920 from San, the San Remo Conference all the way up to uh, the Declaration of Independence in 48. But even beyond that, even beyond that, um, Israel's neighbors have attempted to set things right uh, from their vantage point through conventional warfare. Uh, we've seen it in 48 and 56 and 67, 73, uh, 1982, 2006, um, and it hasn't really worked out. Uh, they've attempted it through, uh, you know, asymmetric warfare um, with two nationalist uprisings from 87 to 92-93 with the first intifada then the second intifada from 2000 to 2005 and it hasn't worked and so the current manifestation of um weaponization uh, is is lawfare it's basically calling for international boycotts and sanctions and trying to use intellectual arguments to undermine the uh, Jewish state. So whilst they've always hung on yeah, to this... I, I, just, I just want to hang on to that for a second. I just want to say yeah. lawfare is a wing of narrative mm-hmm. warfare. Yeah. But there's other sides to it. There's also weakening your allies, uh, weakening their sense of uh, of commitment to you because they're not sure that you're mm-hmm. really the real deal. And I mm-hmm. think one of the most powerful uh, battles of narrative warfare is actually at, in this case, at the Jewish people themselves. When Jewish people themselves, and you and you hinted to that, don't know their own history, don't know their narrative very well, a different narrative sneaks in. I, I, I want to say that the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, if you will, uh, abhors a vacuum. Mm. If you're not going to fill it with your strong narrative, 
Somebody else is going to come. We just had this week a story of um, of a Christian television channel called God TV trying to missionize in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, attempts to continue to create a two-state solution because that's the just solution, quote-unquote. Uh, or we have um, what we're talking about, which is just denial of the very fabric of Jewish history when, when Mahmoud Abbas w- wanted to sue the UK for the Balfour Declaration. So you have all kinds of attacks on narrative, and one of the key strategies against the narrative wars to have your own narrative set well. You have a phrase here, you know, I've, I've highlighted so many of your phrases, but my favorite, I yeah. thought, I think maybe a seminal phrase mm. that I just just got to hang on on every time. But, you know, your article is quite large, so I keep on losing my pages here. Uh, but you said basically that every time that, here it is, every time actual Europeans have come in contact with Jews in their native land, the end result has been anti-colonial resistance. Every time Europeans, who, who some people claim that we Jews are Europeans, you're saying every time actual Europeans come in contact with Jews in their native land, the end result has been anti-colonial resistance. And you name three times, Judah the Maccabee versus the Greeks in 167 to 160 BCE, Simon Bar Kokhba versus the Romans, in 132 to 136 Common Era, and Menachem Begin versus the British, 1939 to 1948. So it's it's kind of, according to that logic, it's very hard to say that the Jews are Europeans when every time they come in contact, as you've written, come in contact with Europeans, they're actually, they're actually pushing them back. They're actually fighting with them. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we live in a day and age where people tend to often struggle to know their the history of group identities, let alone expecting to know somebody else's. Uh, I mean, in an ideal world, people would be aware, people would not see the present as detached from the past, but rather see it as a product of the experiences that have happened in times prior to our own. But sadly, that is not the case outside the realm of, uh, of history, the professional practice of history, which is why we need to bring these points out. Now, it's interesting you mention all of this because uh, when I was in Jerusalem just a couple of months ago, I have very good friends there that, you know, that um, who are from, who are not Jewish, non-Jewish uh, people who live on that land. And you talk to them and you sort of, you, you mention, you talk them through those, you know, those historical instances when Jewish people have come in contact with European colonizers in that land. And it's resulted in uh, anti-colonial resistance, not in some sort of a, a an alliance or whatever or collusion of some sort, as, as is often falsely assumed, and they don't know these bits of detail. Now, the thing is that narratives have consequences. If one person believes a certain thing to be true, that may not have consequences, but if his five of his mates also subscribe to that view, then you've got a cult. And then when that idea spreads to, say, you know, a thousand people, then you've got a movement. And then the movement starts to demand certain political outcomes. So that's why narratives are important. And sadly, as you and I have both often identified, a large part of the problem is that lots of Jewish people um, aren't, I guess, equipped enough, aware enough of their own history. I mean, such a large part of... Israeli society identifies as Hebrew-speaking Israelis rather than Jews. It's like they've created this level beneath secular, like there's this thing called secular Jew. But then my mates in Tel Aviv often tell me like, no, 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 I'm even next level up from, or next level down from that. I'm not a secular Jew. I'm a 
Hebrew-speaking Israeli. Now, those Hebrew-speaking Israelis, the best argument they can come up with if they were confronted by this truckload of criticism is, hey, we have a right to exist um, and, you know, take it or leave it, we have a right to defend ourselves. That may be true in its own right, but the person who, say, lives in Jericho or who lives in Ramallah who, or who lives in Jerusalem, for that matter, who's subscribed to a different view on this, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, well, hang on a second. If you're not religiously Jewish or civilizationally Jewish or have any historical connection to this land and you were born in or your grandparents were born in uh, in Kiev, in Ukraine, why should you be here? And that's where my article comes into the picture. I'm giving you, I'm, I'm telling you the argument that you need to tell that person and say, look, we have a civilizational link here. <clears throat> that's that. So do oh, you like so do you like the word indigeneity or or you're using a different term which I like civilizational link? By the way, that is the language that the international community used also in 1917 Balfour and 1920 San Remo courts, which they recognized um, the ancestral connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, what you would call a civilizational link. They recognized that they did not grant that. By the way, I also wrote an article recently trying to explain why some in the weaponized narrative against Israel use the 1947 partition plan as the birthing of Israel because they want to say the UN granted you a small country uh, and the UN was maybe wrong to do that, but you should never be bigger than the borders of the UN. And I pointed out uh, in that article that the real international legal recognition of Jewish rights and land of Israel was all the way back in San Remo and, and at uh, Balfour, which recognized Jewish rights in the land of Israel and wanted to reconstitute, this was the language, reconstitute uh, the, the Jewish commonwealth in, in the land of Israel. You also go to, to lengths in your article to actually point out that throughout Jewish history, Jews no. really never gave up no. their civilizational connection with this land. Mm. Absolutely. So that was my point earlier that that if conventional civilizations or nations had to go through what Jews have had to go through, remember I mentioned those two stages where stage one, you're in your land, but you're ruled by someone else. And then you're out of your land you, and you're ruled by someone else. And the land is also ruled by someone else, right? Right. With all of this happening, this uh, hasn't actually happened with uh, conventional um, civilizations. I mean, uh, the subcontinent, for example, has always had a comfortable Hindu majority, even though Muslims have also lived in the subcontinent, but it's also always had a comfortable Hindu majority. Um, you know, Buddhism started out in northern India, Nepal, that area, Lumbini, but it spread into Far Eastern Asia. There's generally been a, you know, where Buddhist communities have existed, there has been a Buddhist demographic majority. Um, same with Islam and its advent in the Hejaz region in what is today called Saudi Arabia in the Makkah Medina area. Muslims have always had a, generally had a Muslim majority in the lands over which they ruled, generally speaking, although there are some exceptions. But with Jews, they lost that majority, uh, the demographic, they lost the, dem dem the, the, the demographic majority after the expulsion. The area becomes Byzantine Christian over time, and then it comes under the Abbasid Caliphate, and the Crusades happen. In the So basically, you've got Muslims and Christians fighting over uh, this territory, but Jews, where are the Jews in the picture? They're, a, they're sort of like a subdued minority in the, in the background at times. In fact, for the most part in history, they did find more of an ally 
with Muslims than they did with the Christians. But there's been a bit of a reversal on that score, which probably is too complex for us to go into now. But well, I, guess I, th I think I think it's not that complex in the sense that yeah. the Islam was able to deal with the Jew as a second class citizen when the Jew was weak and yeah. indeed a second class citizen. The minute you have a shiny uh, country in the midst of an Islamic region in an area that they thought that was under their dominion and is now have this competing religion, competing people who are supposed to remain a second class citizen now being these upstarts in their region, showing them off kind of uh, showing them up. Uh, that is something that is um, that, that, that hurts their, their sense of pride and their sense of religion. So that's that's the only difference between, let's say, Islam and Catholicism is that Catholicism figured out that they're not equipped anymore to defeat the entity called Israel. So they came to some kind of separate peace, some kind of, you know, detente, uh, while Islam or at least parts of Islam have not yet been able to do that. Although there is some some budding effort towards that, it seems there is some budding effort. It's obvious. It's oftentimes quashed. In this article, by the way, that Saeed Barakat wrote, he was quashing, trying to quash the Saudi uh, rapprochement uh, with Israel. Uh, but but that is, you know, there is, I think, and maybe I'll get a chance to talk with you about this at a different interview. There is an interest today in some parts of Islam to find a way past. Uh, the conflict and to somehow religiously accept Israel, but that is not uh, the case with with the Palestinian leadership for sure. Yeah, look, I've often made the point in the past, not in that specific article that we're talking about tonight, but in other articles, I have made the point that uh, most civilizations' histories tend tends to be um, most histories tend to be bipolar. Now, people, because you know your history shapes your confidence in yourself. People have the habit of cherry-picking the good bits and willfully disowning the bad bits. Now, it's very difficult to ascertain whether uh, whether someone's history has more good bits than bad bits or not because it all really depends on the vantage point of the observer. So suffice it to say that the history of Islamic civilization is no different. Now, often what, hap what ends up happening is if a Muslim person is talking about their history, they'll pick out the best bits where they'll say, oh, look, here is a reference to a particular time frame where Jews were booming and thriving under Islamic rule. And they'll often refer to the Andalusian period for that, right? But then, but then whilst that may be true, there may be truth to that, but at the same time, there were also more radical and more extremist caliphs who didn't treat Jews very well. And the same is true of Christianity. There were popes who were friendly towards Jews and popes who were not. So the accurate way of looking at things is to look at the whole picture, what's and all, and then draw conclusions based on that. And when we look at that, and we look at the broad sweep of the second stage of Galut, right, from the, the 135 CE onwards, we find that Jews were treated as subordinates, both in the Christian lands in Europe, as well as in Islamic lands across North Africa and the Middle East. And it is true that at times, because Islam has more of a formalized institution called the Mi, uh, where, you know, you, the, sub, the, the, the subordinate class has to know its place, uh, they can be quite they they have have been quite tolerant in the past but as you rightfully say israel is big it's powerful it's a first world country right in the heart of the middle east it exists in its own right and that will be found bothersome by lots of israel's neighbors but the good news is that i think there's been a, a bit of a reversal happening because of the threat of iran so the gulf states are beginning to come on side and i think israel some of israel's immediate neighbors in the north syria and lebanon who share a border with it um, it's a matter of time before they also come to the party and basically want to make peace. 
Right. I, the word peace is a tricky word. Uh, it is it is a modern and popular word. I, I think a lot of times I, I prefer the word uh, cooperation or regional alignment or realignment. Uh, the word peace is the word peace has in it uh, a kind of an unspoken love, uh, which I think maybe is not going to exist so very quickly. But but an acceptance and understanding that this is a you know a border with a neighbor who's powerful that I respect and that I have to accept in one way or another and work with is probably more likely in the shorter in the shorter long term than in the long long term of actually coming to some kind of you know big sense of, of Middle East peace. We're not quite there yet. We got to remember that. Uh, anti-Semitism is still taught very much in Egypt, uh, in Jordan. We see the the, uh, the 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 television programming that comes out of those places. So even places with with formalized so-called peace with Israel uh, still have uh, still teaching tremendous lot of uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, Dr. Sherry, let me kind of reintroduce you for a second, and also mention some of the people that are with us right now. We are speaking with uh, Dr. Sherry Sufi from Western Australia who's an intellectual, a writer, and, and a thinker about linguistics and about nationalism. Uh, and he also uh, brings people of influence and the policymakers to places like Israel, amongst other places around the world, to understand <clears throat> what the, the regions are doing and thinking. Uh, and he's written a fabulous article that we're talking about today in the Times of Israel, which I really recommend. And folks, if you know me, you know I'm not one to recommend things lightly. If I'm recommending it to you, it's because I truly believe in it. It's an article in the Times of Israel called Israel, Not a European Colony. I recommend it to you not just for the content, but also for the style. There's a certain stylistic element in it, which is uh, important to read. In the, in the meantime, before you get to that reading, I just want to say hi to a few people who are with us. Uh, Lee Rosen is with us. Josh Wonder, my good friend. Uh, Liev Hov. Uh, we have a friend from Cyprus whose name I cannot read because I don't read the Cyrillic Greek alphabet, but I want to tell you that I am really looking forward to getting to Cyprus and maybe even this summer. I'm very interested in the Cypriot-Greek-Israel kind of alliance, and I want to check out the beaches too. Is that a sin? Mm -hmm. um, and also Moshe Yehuda Bernstein, a lot of people are with us, and we're both live on Facebook and uh, on YouTube, and this will also be part of the Ishai Fleischer Show, my podcast uh, which people can uh, can tune into by visiting my website, which is yishaifleischer.com or the Land of Israel Network, which I'm part of. I'm proud to be part of that. So I just put up the website name on, on the screen. And I want to turn for a second to people who are watching, and I want to encourage you to comment a little bit. And and the question that I, I want to get to is that we've, we've dealt with uh, theoretics, uh, and my sister, Racheli uh, Vinnick, just uh, popped on as well. Hi, Racheli. God bless you. Uh, Sherry, Dr. Sherry, we've, we've, thought, we've talked about it in, in a bit of a theoretical kind of framework. This stuff is not theoretical at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you, the, the, the article that you wrote is also itself uh, part, of a, part of a war, part of this narrative war. And I uh, engage a lot on Twitter, and I, am, mm -hmm. I, I go to sleep at night, on the one hand, happy with my own personal work. On the other hand, uh, realizing how many people out there mm. are against Israel and how the various narratives, the anti-Israel narratives, are powerful in the age of narratives, in the age of social media, which we're engaging in right now. In the age of social media, anti-Israel narratives are, 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 are everywhere. 
and they're powerful. And there's different kinds. Uh, one is Amer Israel steals America's money and they have lawyers and interest groups getting American money and therefore you're existing on our, uh, on our, on our dime and our dollar. Uh, or mm. of course, the one that we're really focused on, which is uh, you're a white uh, Israel, you're a white European colonialist enterprise. You, you were born in, in a British Jewish cabal and now you're taking over Palestine uh, and, and you have no other history. I myself, by the way, met an Arab in Jerusalem who told me we have we have uh, done we have dug up this land and we have found no Jewish history for the last ten thousand years. That's what he told me back then. He so, hasn't the man of olives. Uh, he 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 denies everything. He denies everything. So I'm throwing out there. Um, I'm throwing out there the question. I, I want to turn the conversation more into the real world. Campus, uh, New York Times. Um, there was, by the way, an article in New York Times this week that basically said, here's a laboratory that Israel uses to kill people, to study ways to kill people, and, and now they're using it for healing the, the COVID virus. But the point is that, that you know, there, there was a narrative in there. Israel's a violent state. Hmm. Uh, so, so there are many, many narratives out there. And I want to turn it to you. Just, just before I do, my friend Shlomo Algera is writing. He says, I think as Jews become more secularized, they tend to fall into left-wing movements to fill the void of their lack of identity. And that brings us back to the question, uh, Dr. Sherry. Tell me about how we're facing these narratives that you're writing against on campus, in places like that, and how do we push back? Yep, so before I can even answer how we push back, there is something else that is absolutely crucial for us to acknowledge. Why do people care about this tiny sliver of land in the first place? I mean, if we were to compare the size of Israel, it would be uh, almost the same as New Jersey, I mean, or Qatar, or it's, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's even smaller than Sri Lanka, or, I mean, you don't really see people investing huge amounts of effort and energy discussing those other tiny places. So why this? I think the answer is because of its civilizational relevance in the eyes of Westerners and, I guess, uh, Muslims. Um, there is a, a, some kind of a religious civilizational connection there with Jerusalem, and it's part of people's eschatologies, and so they feel a sense of ownership because mm. that land means something to them. Um, and I think that's why, that's what sort of brings this particular conflict and this whole debate onto, onto a, a gigantic scale, probably where it doesn't belong, but it ends up belonging there because of the reason I just mentioned. So that's the first thing. Now, how do we fight it? It's a good wait, 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 one second. I, I want to hang on to that, to that point of yours. Uh, so, so your, your point was is that people feel their own personal civilizational connection to it. You said Islam, Christianity. Uh, and yet uh, there, there's maybe another level, which is a, a type of replacement theology mm. in a modern sense, which is I call the, the replacement theology of 2020 is replacement narrative. For mm. some reason, people feel a great need to replace Israel, to be the new Israel. That's the, actually Christian language or in the Islamic version is that uh, Judaism was, was Din al-Batel, which is like a, in a religion, a discarded old religion, there's some kind of great need to replace the Jews. That's also part of replacement narrative today, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, it is, but it depends on which circles we're talking about. We've got right. to be 
us, I guess, when uh, we talk about the anti-Zionist, anti-Israel forces, because they all, all they may be united by is their shared goal to to dismantle the Jewish state. But the methodology and the motivations may be slightly different. So, the I mean, the the religious fundamentalists might well be uh, of the description that you mentioned a second ago. But then there are atheists who have the same goals. You know, it makes you wonder on a deeper psychological level what is going through the head of a of a Westerner who lives in New York, isn't Jewish, isn't Muslim, isn't Christian, has no personal connection with that land or anything to do with it. But you look at these some of these people that have, for example, that comment on your uh, Facebook page and especially ones on mine, because I actually don't delete a lot of this, the hate that I receive. I leave it there in the name of free speech, unless, of course, they're inciting to violence, which they sometimes do. Um, you look at the, some of the stuff they're saying and you click on the profile of the person that, are, that that's writing all that stuff. They're not actually normal people. It's not just a cultivated interest. It's like the cover page is something to do with Free Palestine. The uh, the profile pic is something to do with Free Palestine. They'll have a picture of um, the Dome of the Rock and all of that. And I'm like, this person's neither Arab nor are they Jewish. They don't speak Hebrew. They don't speak Arabic. They haven't lived in that part of the world. And they're also not an academic, right? You could have an you're allowed to have an academic interest in a subject without a personal connection, right? And they're not even an academic. I can't find a single paper published by them. So it's like, why do you even care? Right. That really, that really fascinates me. And I think to answer my own question, I mean, why, why do I think they care? Is because they've been, they've been caught up in these gigantic conspiracy theories that are invented by people who do care, who do have a personal mm. connection. Right. As mm. you mentioned, all the, you know, the Jews wanting to, to control the world and this and that, and you have to, or, or, for that matter, the religious um, fundamentalist who think, who wants to replace the Jew, sometimes they'll subscribe to a conspiracy theory and they'll broadcast it and 10,000 people might reach it. Not every single one of those 10,000 people are as religious as the guy broadcasting it, but then they end up subscribing to the idea. And that's yeah. how it has this multiplier effect, which we have to constantly push back I, against. I, I will, I'll let it go. I'll let this go, Dr. Sherry. But, but to mm -hmm. me... These are you. You kind of gave me the symptoms, or 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 let's put it this way, like a, another element of the of the pathology. But the root of the pathology is still not exactly clear. The root of anti-Semitism, the root of replacement theology. There might be something, uh, and and myself being you know a, a religious man uh, mm -hmm. uh, and a rabbi, maybe you know to me there is also some kind of there. There must be a bigger answer to the obsessiveness by mm. which the world loves or hates Israel mm. Uh, mm. and has something to do with the Bible. It has something to do with, it probably has something to do with, with, with a sense of where the world needs to go and what the, uh, uh, what the end game of, of the universe is altogether. Yeah. And, like, this, there's something, there's something there. And, and, and I, I remember, I, I think I was reading a book called Slaughterhouse five by Vonnegut. Uh-huh. Was that was that the name, guys? Is that the right name? In any case, he writes somewhere there. He says, he says the Middle East is like the birth canal of the world. It's bloody, it's torn, and from there will come some kind of salvation for the world. So, anyway, you know, like that. But now that now now that you've mentioned it, I mean, we we're live on air. We might as well just touch on that very briefly. Uh, because this is the bit that I've, I suppose, hinted at in the article without exactly specifically going into the details. But I mean, perhaps, and this, is, this perhaps gives us something to talk about in a future podcast, but um, I'll leave you on this thought. Um, 
you know, both of the two religions that uh, that have fought over the Jewish homeland for the last sort of, you know, the better half of the last um, thousand and a half years, these religions did not come out of a Hindu context or a Confucius context or an, you know, or an Aboriginal Dreamtime context. They came out of a Jewish context. All of the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah, and uh, you know Moses and Aaron, all of that, these are Jewish stories. And they have been obviously uh, you know, inherited, if you will, if that's the way to put it, by both the two religions that, 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 are, that are its offshoots, Christianity and Islam. So the, you're not wrong in thinking that the temptation that these religions have substituted the earlier uh, of the two is always there. Now, in fairness, we must acknowledge that whilst um, Christian history um, has been incredibly anti-Jewish, the Christian world has today created pockets of support for the state of Israel. The motivations may not be exactly identical to your motivations or my motivations, um, and they may have something to do with, uh, you know, eschatological underpinnings, which we can talk about another time, but they're there nonetheless, and Israel can continue to benefit because they, from that because, they, you know, their motivations may be different, but they're at least not out there to actively hurt you. Right. They're there to support your right to be there, to have sovereignty over the land, to constitute right. your demographic majority and so forth. However, the mantle has shifted now to the Arab world and there we're sort of dealing with some quite vile conspiracy theories, which we probably don't have the time to get into. But it's this sort of, it's this collision of, you know, European anti-Semitism that came out of Russia, like this whole idea, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which will probably require a podcast of its own if we were to start unpacking it. It's that that has gone and superimposed itself on top of a supersessionist Islamic mindset, which has created the modern Muslim anti-Zionist uh, kind of way of thinking. It's an enmeshment of both. Yeah, a lot, That's right. And, and, and that's a good point. Let me just read a few of the comments that have come up. Uh, my friend Lou says, Lou Weiss says, because Israel is the root of all civilizations, the root of three major religions, as you were saying, that there's some kind of common, common root between them, and that causes uh, some of the tensions. Uh, Lara from Denver says, things, things seem to have turned from disagreement over political, emotional, possibly even well-intentioned support for the little guy, the oppressed, as Palestinians are perceived by some, but that has meshed with the Jew hatred perfectly, meaning to say some of the liberal thinking has the idea that the, to the I read this from uh, Professor Joshua Berman, to the victims go the spoils, right? Meaning to say the, 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 the victim mentality. And she says that goes well to get meshed together with Jew hatred and with past Palestinians as, as the victims. That's absolutely true. Uh, and um, um, Lavin uh, throws out a compliment, says Sherry Sufi, PhD, is well articulated. Very good. And uh, Michael Hassan, good friend of mine, says, at one point will the G word come into political discourse? And he means, of course, God. Um, and I think that if you look in the Muslim world, the God is a very, uh, very prevalent part of the discourse. 
and I, I think I've noticed that Prime Minister Netanyahu is trying. It's not easy for him. It's trying. It's easier in America to say, in God we trust. But I think I hear a lot more Baruch Hashem's, like, thank God's from, from Prime Minister Netanyahu. But there's no question. We're not, we, we are dealing with some of the more, the phenomenons that are, uh, this is not this particular discussion. I have many religious discussions, for example, with Rabbi Mike Foyer. This particular discussion is more uh, sociological. Sure. And trying to get to the root of uh, of of how people are are thinking and why why in 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 some ways this discussion is even okay. Let's put God aside for a second and see why people are being anti-Semitic or pro-Israel. By the way, mm -hmm. and Joy Joy says Joy Halen says Shalom from Australia. Listen to you on my morning walks all the time. Thank you very much, Joy. Um, I, I, Sherry, uh, Doctor Sherry Sufi. Again, you're you're a, a West Australian a writer and thinker. Uh, I just want, want to get you one more time back on track to something that I may have thrown you off, and I need you to try to help me answer this, which is um, let's talk about today, campus today, the, the, the weaponization of the weaponized narrative. Like, like how is it being actually used against Israel daily, and how, what can we do to fight it? What is actually happening is that there is this narrative floating around that Jews are just white European colonizers, and in the process of trying to get into Palestine and colonize it, they've ended up displacing large numbers of people, right? And uh, the settlement building project and so on and so forth is only more of the same. It's the same thing. This is what they're saying, that what is happening today in what to you is Judea, Samaria, and to them the West Bank is the same as what happened on the other side of the Green Line between sort of 1882 up to 1948. And so they're saying this is all colonization. And because it's colonization, it's a terrible thing. And colonization in this day and age, it has, has you know, it's a pejorative. It should, but it shouldn't be because the positive came out of European colonization, but it's a separate debate. But in the eyes of the world, colonization was a bad thing, particularly European colonization. So then when they go and share that narrative with large numbers of people, they've won them over. They've won them over, right? Which is why the way that you asked me twice, uh, how do we push back? Well, we push back by pointing out that the Jews are not, in fact, foreign colonizers. Their culture, values, language, their ancestors all originated in that specific territory. Um, and uh, they were removed from there against their will. Now they're back in their land, reconstituting themselves. Uh, you can maybe find other ways to oppose it or whatever it is, but you can't then to turn around and say that these people are not actually even from here. Right. Uh, you're rewriting history. Well, so, so know your history, be able mm. to feel it inside, be able to articulate it. But then you've used another term somewhere in your article, uh, which is, and let's just let me put up that article right now. So I just want people to be able to see it um, on the times of Israel. It's a must read. It's called Israel, not a European colony. Um, it's actually the Jewish people coming back to the land of Israel is actually decolonialization. That's a very, to me, to me personally, that is a very powerful uh, a language. Meaning to say the Jewish people back in the land are actually decolonializing the land by pushing out, in, in this case, the British, or pushing out even uh, Islamic control of this land, which is an ancient Jewish land. Uh, you know what? I'll let you say. You tell me how you understand that phrase that you wrote, which is it's an it, it, there's a element of decolonialization as, instead of colonialization. It's kind of more robust to just not say, no, we're not colonizers, but to use that term decolonialization. Help me use that term properly. 
Yeah, so there's a few activists that have begun using the term decolonization. In fact, my very good friend, um, the head of the um, uh, the Executive Council of Australian Jury, um, Alex Rifkin, uh, uses that term in his recently released book, um, uh, Zionism. He sort of calls it the Jewish National Liberation Movement, right? right. That's the light in which Zionism has to be uh, marketed and sold to the world. Otherwise, you're forever going to be struggling with, um, you know, your neighbours as well as their sympathisers in the West trying to push back. If you're a coloniser, then they're going to say you shouldn't be there. If you're European, you shouldn't be there. But if you can then challenge that and say we're neither Europeans nor colonisers, it's, it, it's our land. The only thing is we lost sovereignty over it and we lost our majority over it. So the debate we really need to be having is do you believe, this is what you, we should be asking um, the critics of Israel is, do you believe that someone, the indigenous people of a land that gets shrunk from a majority to a minority state, do they have the right to reconstitute their demographic majority through repopulating the land and reconstituting a state over it? And a state that's not even, that's not even half of what the critics say it is. I mean, you talk to, I mean, I've driven around extensively uh, in the Arab villages in northern Israel, the ones that live on the other side of the Green Line, they they, they do not want to be part of a future Palestinian state. Uh, I mean, the state of Israel has a you know a manageable minority, one fifth Arabs, who in, have more rights there than 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 in in many neighbouring countries. So that's the narrative that's got to get out there. That's the narrative that needs to resonate, and it's it's not, but. Um, it is, it is decolonization in the sense that the indigenous people managed to reconstitute themselves. Now, to use a, quickly use a, a comparable, see, it's very hard to think of another example of where this has happened because it hasn't. But I could give you a hypothetical example. You know, the Zoroastrian peoples who um, originally came from Iran. This is, Iran wasn't always Islamic nor Shiite, nor did they always speak Farsi. They spoke the language called Avestan and they had a language, the religion called Zoroastrianism. When Islam conquered uh, that land uh, in the 7th century, um, over time the Zoroastrians were pushed eastbound and they ended up in areas of, you know, northern, the northern part of the subcontinent. Mostly live in, uh, actually most, most of them are based in the province of Gujarat. Now imagine if the Zoroastrians of India were to start their own equivalent of the Zionist movement and they wanted to go back and reconstitute an Avestan-speaking Zoroastrian civilizational majority in Iran, of course we can acknowledge that the current uh, Iranians are not going to like that, right? They're not going to like that because they're going to say, yeah, okay, well, you may have been here chronologically, historically, but we're the ones that have lived on it for the last 1,400 years, right? So we also have a valid land. And that's almost the prism through which we can look at the modern Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But this is a hypothetical. Now, I can't come up with any other examples of a similar um, decolonization movement of a, of a people that, that get removed from their geography, then go back and reconstitute their majority and regain sovereignty over it. And only the Jews have been able to do something like that. Right. Helps us understand why some people understand it so poorly, because it is so miraculously unique. Very good. Uh, Dr. Sherry Sufi, just a few more minutes uh, of uh, just let's read a few comments from the folks. Says, uh, let me see here. Says Lee Rosen, those Jews who have returned to Israel should be called revenants or returnees. I call them resettlers, right? I think I think the word revenant is is uh, while it was a title of a movie, I think people don't know where that, what that really means. So I use the term resettlers, and sometimes when people call me a settler, I say, yeah, but I'm a resettler. 
Uh, and that's that's a good terminology. Speaking of terminology, because we we are also talking about knowledge, but we're also talking about terminology, Dr. Sufi. So says Lara, liberation movement, I will use that, national liberation movement. And I'm glad that Lara says that because that means that this uh, discussion has also yielded a tactical, uh, if not just strategic understanding. Yeah, liberation movement, national liberation movement. That's what Zionism is. Indigenous, indigenous is best, says Louise. And she likes that. Also, Lee Rosen says, revenants are not colonizers, not occupiers. I think this is the last one here. Israel haters don't know, nor are they willing to accept historical facts. The San Remo resolution gave Israel, I, I don't want to use the word gave also, it's, it's really recognized, Israeli Jewish rights, legal rights on the land of Israel according to international law, which stands till today. And, and it was still and really is the deal of the century. That was my article recently, which I wrote, uh, San Remo, the original deal of the century. Uh, also, Israel should not be saying they are annexing Judea and Samaria, but rather reclaiming sovereignty, as the doctor is saying. Dr. Sherry Sufi, your article, uh, which I want everybody to see here, I'm putting it up on the screen, is called Israel, uh, Not a European Colony, is is uh, both important historically and also linguistically. You've really added a lot to this discussion. Uh, and I think that everybody who's out there on campus or is facing this uh, these challenges in various ways at the workplace or on Twitter or wherever they are, I need to read this article. I highly recommend it. Uh, and I want to thank you very much for uh, for really helping us understand, us, even us Jews, understand our history a little bit better and our and our relevance or revenance, should we say, uh, in this in this land. And uh, let's hope for the betterment of this whole region, that uh, the wars against Israel will stop, but also the narrative war. And I think, and I think, and this I think maybe it's important to end here, which is if the narrative war against Israel can be stopped or 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 won, then that will not only make Israel live a happier, healthier life, but also help the region develop. Because a lot of these uh, the, these fights actually suppress, dep depress the progress of the whole region, including the Arab countries around us that need to, how should we say, get over this 100-year war, move into a mode of acceptance of Israel, and therefore a mode of prosperity, and dare I say even uh, a, a deeper relationship between the children of Abraham in this region uh, for, for a better future. Yeah, amen to that. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I guess uh, my final thoughts uh, would be that accepting that Jews are neither European nor foreign colonizers on Middle Eastern soil is not going to solve this conflict overnight. It just simply, we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought that that would be the case. But at the bare minimum, starting with that acknowledgement will most certainly shift the conversation towards a far, far better direction than the one it's been on for the last hundred years. Uh, and that's what I've attempted to uh, make a small and meaningful contribution towards by reading that uh, article. So if you want to follow more of uh, the things that I write and say, feel free to chuck a like on my page. Um, it's not in the, the links, but perhaps I'll put it in the comments and, and, uh, and, and let's keep collaborating. Absolutely. Oh, the I've put up your website many times, which is uh, sherrysufi.com. Very easy to get to and uh, stay connected with Sherry and what he's thinking and what he's writing. And we hope to have you on again here on the show. So thank you very much for joining us through the magic of this technology all the way from Western Australia with a big good time difference. By the way, I recently was in Perth 
So I, I have a sense of Western Australia. It's it's really an honor and a pleasure. There's a lot of great Australians uh, that are part of the story, and it's just an honor to be able to connect it with you, and also so cool through this awesome technology. Dr. Sherry Sufi, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Rabbi. Good to be with you. All right, folks, you are uh, here with me, Ishai Fleischer, on my Facebook page and on YouTube. Join me uh, on my website for all the stuff that I do, uh, which is hopefully uh, to honor God, to help build Israel, uh, and to help the, the story of a better world come forward. Uh, my website is ishaifleischer.com. And uh, if you want me to keep broadcasting, so help me out, be, be part of that. And uh, we're really trying to broadcast uh, God's word, uh, the land of Israel's word. And remember that very amazing phrase, Ki Torah, uh, from Zion shall come out. Torah, Torah is really knowledge. So check out yishaifleisher.com forward slash donate. Uh, easy enough. Again, I remind you, check out uh, Sherry Sufi's website. Uh, it was great to have him as a guest, sherrysufi.com. And more great stuff is on the way on this and these channels. Oh, oh yeah. And connect with me anywhere you like, uh, at Yishai Fleischer, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube is a little bit of a different name. I think it's called Ion Zion. We called it uh, from uh, it was it was a great name some years ago, and I still like it now. So Ion Zion, that's more YouTubey, uh, and of course at the Land of Israel Network as well. Yeah, don't be shy. Help uh, donate. We live in a world where it makes a big difference if you help out with even a cup of coffee, right? Uh, if you would see me in the street, you would buy me a cup of coffee, maybe. So if you if you would then then chuck a, a little bit of cash. Uh, our way because we're going to keep on broadcasting and, and remember uh, it's not really it's not really me and it's not really us it's really a greater message we're part of a great time we're living in a great era uh, of the reconstitution of the Jewish people in the land of Israel that means a better world is coming uh, great things are coming great knowledge is coming to this world and we're just here to to share it and to thank God for every single moment uh, God bless you wherever you are and stay tuned and shalom all right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. That's been a, a long and awesome show. We had Rabbi Mike Foyer and just now finished up with uh, Dr. Sherry Sufi. Uh, I want to thank so many people who make this show possible. First, uh, I have fabulous donors. I don't want to mention them all by name right now. You guys make all the difference in the world. I mean you. You make all the difference. And I want to thank you so much for helping make the show possible. Uh, and anybody else who wants to join in and help make the show, uh, help broadcast to the world, Torah and and uh, and truth from Judea, uh, please do so by going to yishayfleischer.com uh, slash donate, and that makes makes a big difference. And also support all of our other friends as well. Uh, for example, the Land of Israel Network, which the show is hosted on, uh, and also a Hebron Fund, the Hebron Jewish Community, hebronfund.org, is really a way to uh, to to strengthen the that Jewish community, that part of Judea, and to strengthen the mothers and the fathers. Uh, and their eternal resting place. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Ben Bresky um, and Tabitha and Moshe Herman for getting the show out to the world. You guys are beautiful. You guys are awesome. And I want to thank you guys out there, wherever you are. Uh, keep on being strong. Keep, put on some trelet, true blue Jew stringlets, uh, died in the trelet. Jews, that's what we are. Uh, so check out T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T dot com. And I just really want to bless you wherever you are to keep being strong, to keep connected, to keep uh, wanting to learn more, to keep praying to God for health through this uh, crisis, to remember the loved ones that have been lost, to remember to mark the special days that have been missed throughout this process, and to really have a lot of faith in yourself that if you're alive in this time, that means that God wants you around. 
and to, just to send you a lot of love, really, from the land of love, from the land of blessings. And write me an email, Ishai at the land of Israel.com or Ishai at EshaiFleischer.com. And um, be strong. Be strong and be with God wherever you go. God bless you. Stay tuned. Stay connected. Stay excited about the great time that we're living in. And shalom.